slept in a few dumpsters. Maybe I slept on some babies. Well, Indugu, I'll close now. You probably can't wait to run and cash this check and get yourself something to eat. Mr. McAllister, Mr. McAllister, somebody tore down my posters. It's not fair, it's not fair. Can I get an A? Can I get a recommendation? Can I? Can I? Fuck them. Listen, man, you're my friend, and I know you care about me, and I know you disapprove, and I respect that, but you don't understand my plight. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I'm Patrick Rebold. Oh, cool, I'm Jim Laskowski. And boy, oh boy... Do we have a show for you? And a new con! <laughs> okay, Bob Barker. That was that wasn't Bob, it was the other guy. What's the other guy's name? Oh, Rod Roddy. Rod Roddy. That's not his real name, right? I think so. Yes, well, it is, but now it's George Gray. I'm a I'm a Price is Right watcher daily, so Oh wow. man. We we I moved didn't realize on. We, had, we had a Price is Right nerd on our podcast. That's exciting. Game Show Club coming soon. Do they do they still have furniture sets as the showcases? Uh, they get in there once in a while. Yeah, nice dining room set from Ashley Furniture, or yeah, living room sets. Still, always cars are still the big prizes, though. Still, yeah, car, of course, cars and vacations. I always thought it was a bump. Like, I mean, I was a kid. I I did not understand the idea. That like oh furniture is an expensive thing and if you want nice furniture you have to spend even like I didn't get that so watching that show as a kid I was just like <laughs> like why would you ever choose Showcase B who cares about your patio get the car <laughs> have you been to the uh, Price is Right live show what is no. that it goes on tour <laughs> it was near here fairly recently and I uh, had a coworker go and said it wasn't very good like I mean they play your major games like Plinko and all that stuff. But, like, you had to wait in line and get, uh, you know, like, a special ticket to even participate. And it, it, she just said it was an incredible <laughs> imitation of the real thing. So, that's disappointing. Anyway, this is not the Price is Right cast, although I wouldn't mind if it was, actually. Uh, joining us today is one of my favorite podcasters from my favorite podcast, Film Junk. It is another, none other than Frank... Knerzik. I should ask you how to pronounce your last name before. Knezic. Knezic. Perfect. And he's dubbed by listeners and fans as the king of comedy. Welcome. Never self-proclaimed. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to be here. Uh, we'll also say congrats on the, the recent interview podcast. Oh, thank you. It, yeah. was, fa- it was fantastic with us. Uh, I'm going to pronounce his last name wrong, so... Stephen Tobolowski. <laughs> there you go. So I don't screw it up. Uh, that was really good. Lots of cool stories from Groundhog Day, a movie that I love, and that was that was really awesome and a nice tribute to Harold Ramis. Yeah, that was a really that was a really fun uh, bonus episode, and I loved. I, I there was that little there was that fantastic uh, moment of tension when he put you on the spot about uh, <laughs> you you sense that I quote about course. about uh, Frank Capra movies, and I was like. Ooh. And then you nailed it, and I was so Big excited time. for you. It was, I, it, was basically, yeah. it was basically like you got the little yodeler on the mountain just where you needed it. I was like, very Like, for very a second, for you. I was skimming through my notes and realized, oh, there's only questions here. So I actually have to come up with something on the spot. Because <laughs> usually before a show, I have, like, uh, you know, bullet points, you know, on a piece of paper. of Like, okay, I make sure to bring this up and that up. 
And, you know, for an interview, obviously, you jot down all the questions. And when he threw that question at me, I was like, oh, shit. But, yeah, he makes you feel so comfortable. And that's the thing I love about his podcast, too. It's it, it, it's 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 listening to a really compelling audiobook, but he still makes you feel like you're right in the room with him. I bet he would let you borrow his barbecue sauce. I bet he would. And yeah. uh, I, I have a little special message for Stephen Tobolowsky. Um, hey, Stephen, it's Patrick, the other host of Director's Club. I remember The Creature Walks Among Us. Um <laughs> Because uh, I actually have a little uh, story myself about that movie because uh, that was a movie I was super excited to see because I had an I have a I had an ex girlfriend uh, Carly uh, listeners old episodes might remember her from the John Landis episode oh yeah um, so she was a big fan of the creature from the Black Lagoon she was uh, very infatuated with him because there was a creature in the Black Lagoon statue at this miniature golf course that she used to go to uh, <laughs> it was sort of an off brand creature it looked kind of like more like a gorilla that they painted green but it was uh it was a creature nonetheless and she was a big fan of him and i and i i when i found out that there was a sequel revenge of the creature i started to look up what other creature movies there were and i saw the imdb description for creature walks among us and it sort of made it sound like the creature just tried to assimilate into society hmm. is, is is how the plot of the movie is sort of described and I, that's not the case but in my head, I imagined a universal horror movie in which the monster, like, settles down and gets a job and, <laughs> like, tries to move into a suburb in the night, like, in a nice house with a white picket fence. And I was trying to track that movie down for the longest time because it sounded like the greatest thing I had ever heard of in my life. And then uh, I eventually got that sort of uh, universal legacy collection of Creature from the Black Lagoon. And uh, I watch Creature Walks Among Us, and uh, he mostly just sort of hangs out at a beach house and looks sad. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so so that was, that, was my, uh, that was my story about the Creature Walks Among Us. I know any time I listen to Beach House, I'm sad. So Anyway, we Is don't... Is that one of your newfangled indie bands? Yeah. Uh, okay. One that all sounds the same to you, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it isn't punk rock, I don't like it. So we don't often cover quote-unquote comedy filmmakers, but if there's one we've been eager to dissect, I would say it's the King of Pain. Alexander Pain! That's who the director of the episode is. Cool. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited too. Yeah, honestly, probably with the exception of one of his movies, I pretty much love them all to varying degrees, so there's not going to be a lot of bile on my end. I would agree, and as... As Jay said on the recent Film Junk podcast, you have a hard-on for Alexander Payne, and he was right. <laughs> I certainly do. <laughs> well, uh, I didn't know if Jim had the hard-on or if you had the hard-on. Uh, I suppose you guys can compare your hard-ons later. Um, we will. <laughs> I, uh, I, I like Alexander Payne. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's interesting you don't have much bile for him, because he certainly has a lot of bile. That's true. Uh, in a lot of his films. Um, I like... I mean, I, 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 I'm sort of mixed on Alexander Payne, so I'm sure we're going to have uh, fun arguing that point, especially concerning his later films. Yeah, that's that's definitely interesting, and I'm assuming we, we can touch upon an email we got, too, in the midst of the conversation, if you want, because that, that emailer did bring up some interesting points about his work that I think are kind of uh, objectionable claims, maybe, to some degree, but a lot of Critics definitely bring certain issues up with how he treats some of his characters, and that'll come up definitely later on in the show, I'm sure. Um, 
So yeah, I other than yeah that awesome interview, the only other in-house businesses. I also man, my productivity just skyrocketed lately. I guess I put out a bonus episode with my friend Dan Solomon from Austin, Texas, who uh, goes to South by Southwest every year and got to see I'd say about a half a dozen really interesting movies that have yet to be released, uh, and he gave quick reviews of those along with some TV pilots too. And uh, that that was it was a really cool conversation because him and I've been friends since high school, and he's sort of gone on to be a, a really well known sort of uh, media journalist down there who gets a lot of swag and gets some cool interviews and stuff. So I'm really happy for him and glad we got to do that episode together. That's the only other thing I can think of. Patrick, where have you been doing anything? I mean, you've oh, you've been you've been absent. A, as a matter of fact, I have. Um, in addition, in addition to moving. Um, slash sitting on my ass playing uh, Fallout 3, uh, I've actually recently uh, was on the uh, our friends The Film Jive. Uh, I was on their podcast. Oh, cool. Um, where, we t- where we talked about, uh, you know, well, I mean, it's sort of the, the, the year in movies is kind of finally getting to swing. You got uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. You got mm-hmm. Lego Movie. So uh, what we did was we talked about a police training video from 1988. <laughs> called Surviving Edged Weapons, um, which is really... uh, It's on YouTube, if you ever are curious. It is totally deranged and strange um, and weirdly intense and weirdly silly. Uh, It's it's quite an experience watching it, so I had fun uh, talking about it and just generally quoting uh, sort of the manic uh, fascism of the narration. Wow. (laughs) uh, that's up on Film Jive right now, the last episode, uh, with me, uh, our friend uh, Zach Patante, and uh, Andy, uh, who's the new co-host. Is that anything like um, the instructional video? Well, I mean, every, anybody who's worked like a retail job has to sit through one of those so, videos, yeah, like, safety so, videos and stuff. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it has... So, I mean... One of the reasons that uh, Zach thought of me for the episode was because he knew that Mondo Kane was one of my favorite films. Oh, okay. And he sort of thought it would be similar. And it isn't really that similar as far as the kind of movie it is, but it is similar in, as far as how it operates, which is to say part of what makes Mondo Kane kind of transcendent for me is that it keeps – it's consistently surprising. It's not – it doesn't stick to one brand of weird. It hmm. kind of goes all over the place and parts of it are gross and parts of it are hilarious and parts of it are just baffling and parts of it are really gruesome and hard to watch. And it just keeps changing what it's doing a lot. And same can apply to Surviving Edge Weapons, which is it, – it has those moments that make all instructional videos funny in which it's very somber and serious – uh, vo- voiceover happens while bad acting <laughs> sort of demonstrates things. So it, it has those kind of silliness, but it also has this weird, you know, this brutality where they're showing you actual uh, photos of, you know, people who have been stabbed to death. Um, and that, that gets, so it gets really intense and you have these cops telling stories of being stabbed, which can be really harrowing. Um, but then you have crazy reenactments where it's clear the director was just trying to amuse himself so some of the scenarios where they're trying to demonstrate different techniques of, you know, protecting yourself against bladed weapons or disarming people with bladed weapons or whatever. Some of the scenarios are insane. Um, some of the people they're interviewing are insane. Uh, so it's just – it's a really – it's an embarrassment of riches and it is consistently surprising throughout the whole thing. Uh, so it does kind of work like Mondo Kane in that way. 
Hmm, color me curious. Interesting. Yeah. It's on uh, it's on YouTube, uh, Surviving Edged Weapons. Uh, and then the uh, episode's just on uh, Film Jive. I believe their site is filmjive.wordpress.com. You would be correct. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that about does it for the uh, introduction to the show. Now <laughs> let's move on to the next segment, which is what, Patrick? What we watched. Ooh. A new car. I don't know if that's the name of a movie. Although, you know, every time I watch Christine, I want that car. Oh but God, you can't that get intro? that new, probably. There, there is no, there's no car that looks better than, than that car slowly going down that factory line. Oh, yeah. I'm not and a big those, fan of... Well, sorry. <laughs> and then those opening titles just cap it off. Mm-hmm. So good. Yeah. That's, uh, I'm not a big fan of that movie, but I'm a huge fan of how it opens. You're weird, Patrick. Meow, meow, meow. Fuck every movie by you, we bull man, you should be watching. And not sleeping, here come the movies and TV finales. We're all addicted, rewatching and talking like actors, directors, fanatics, and critics. Flow in the morning, and I'm watching Repossessed, Big in the Omen. I just saw 300, The Searchers, and Ronin, American Movie, Red Eye, Bull Durham. Baby, we watching all of the shows, and Dennis the Menace, and Oklahoma. Now we must talk. It's a podcast. What do we watch? What do we watch? Uh, let's... Uh, we always ask the guests to go first in this segment, and I'm very excited to hear what Frank has watched recently. Okay, well, I kind of saw your letterboxed and sprung board from that a bit. Yeah. And I'll talk just briefly about two things somewhat connected. Uh, so I watched, I'll say first, Quick Change. Woohoo! Uh, I believe directed by Howard Franklin and Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know a lot about the lore of of Quick Change and how the direction, how Bill Murray took over. I've just heard about it. Do you know much about that, Jim? I think, uh, I think at some point just Howard Franklin either got fired or he left and then Bill Murray just took over. Yeah. I don't know if it was a collaborative effort at all. But But I I really like quick change. I think I like it more and more every time I watch it. Same. Uh, uh, I love the, the bank robbery is the best part of the movie for me. I would argue that it's kind of downhill from there. Not bad, but not as good as the intro. Uh, so a couple of quick observations. The bike jousting scene <laughs> seems so ahead of its time comedically. It feels like it's something out of the late 2000s comedy-wise. Like, uh, I hate to say Napoleon Dynamite, but that or a few movies that were similar to it afterwards. Maybe Nacho Libre, uh, same director. So, like, there's some weird moments like that that still hold up really well. And uh, it's definitely a, a, a solid comedy movie. Yeah, the supporting cast in that is just 
every single person that he comes across, it sort of turns into like after hours. Yeah. And I love that approach where people are stuck somewhere and they can't get out of it. And they're trying to figure their way uh, out of a situation and they just keep coming across all these crazy characters throughout. And, um, um, Tony Shalhoub as the cab driver just kills me. Uh, Stanley Tucci. Yeah, man. I'm actually, it's funny that you brought this up too. Cause after rewatching him, like, I really hope Patrick has seen this. And if he hasn't, I'm just going to mail him a copy, which is what I did today, earlier today. I, mail- oh, I mailed you a copy, Patrick, because I really think you're going to like this movie. All right, awesome. Yeah, it's just, it, it starts off like a comedic take on Inside Man, then it becomes After Hours. And, uh, it, you, know, it, you know, Randy Quaid kind of gets a little obnoxious here and there, but that's, I come to expect that from him um, in that era of comedy. Uh, but it, it's just, it's just one of those, you know, movies that really moves fast, um, and it's it's just got that Bill Bill Murray humor that I I really love that sort of hit its peak at that point for me. Um, it was it was a movie I saw like on HBO a lot as a kid, and just have grown to love it more and more as time has gone on. Yeah, huh. and like most Bill Murray movies, I always kind of catch a new thing here and there, or a facial expression. Yeah, that's really funny. The guy's the best. Absolutely. And kind of relating to that, I saw you finally watched Nothing But Trouble. I rewatched it after many, 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 many years. And I was shocked, to <laughs> give it, fr- frankly, to give, see you give it a half star out of five on Letterboxd. <laughs> uh, it is, I rewatched that. Now, the first thing I'll say is Nothing But Trouble was the first DVD I ever purchased. I purchased it before I had a DVD player on those the original release of Warner Brothers DVDs and it's full screen it's got the worst menus ever and i've been dying for a baby blue of this puppy since the inception of the medium now i went on i'd been hesitant to buy the hd version from itunes because it said it was full frame as well huh. but eventually i you know i bit the bullet i bought it uh, two nights ago and it's actually widescreen. So this is, I think, my first time ever watching Nothing But Trouble in widescreen HD. And it was just a glorious experience. Uh, uh, definitely one of my favorite movies. I, I obviously understand that it's very subjective to humor in this Indeed. Movie. And uh, I just think it's amazing. And I think Dan Aykroyd is absolutely hilarious in it. And... I don't know. I've, I've said this on Film Junk, but it's it reminds me of Anchorman and these weird hmm. non sequiturs and nonsense lines that spew out of their mouths. And for me, the nothing but trouble. Those lines are way funnier than Anchorman. And I don't know. It's like for, it's a high budget comedy movie. I, I, it's shot by Dean Cudney. Uh, the, the scores by Michael Kamen. Like, there's some really good people who worked on the movie uh, and the cast as well. And I don't know. I just love it. I don't. I don't understand how someone could give it a half a star to five. It just does not make sense to me. There's so many, like, even today's realm of comedy is brutal compared to this. I, I don't know how many Ooh. recent comedies you see, but there. I would agree that lately there hasn't been like a a comedy that's blown me away. Uh, I mean, Anchorman 2 was kind of abysmal 
Yeah, I, I was really like I love Anchorman. And, okay, and, and what did you give Anchorman two on Letterboxd, Jim? Uh, three, three stars. <laughs> so you said Anchorman two is abysmal. <laughs> I and love this. That nothing but trouble is that much worse. I love this about Frank. This is something that Patrick may not know. He is the Letterboxd police. <laughs> oh, I see. And he he goes on and he he looks at your star ratings and challenges you, and it's great. Um, it's one of my favorite things about him on Film Junk. Anyway, so I um, I, I, I also rewatched this. Yeah. I was warned that you that your favorite one of your favorite movies is Nothing But Trouble. Warned. And uh, I have I have the disc that has uh, Spies Like Us on one side and Nothing But Trouble on the other. The uh, Chevy Chase Dan Aykroyd combo pack. Absolutely. Um, so uh, uh, I mean I, I I could offer one hypothesis uh, for why someone like Jim. Uh, would give it half a star, or maybe like someone like me would turn it off uh, 25 minutes in. <laughs> um, it could be that uh, it is the <laughs> it is one of the most unpleasantly uh, unfunny movies I've ever seen. Um, it is it's it's not just unfunny; it's just super unpleasant. Yeah, uh, I will say this about it, uh, and I I, I do wonder. Um, how big, like how diehard of a Dan Aykroyd fan you are, because it is the most, other than the fact that I, that there's literally at least, I mean, for me, and obviously comedy subjective, uh, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong and I'm right or whatever, but I'm just saying, uh, the, other than the fact that it never made me laugh once, this is the most Dan Aykroydiest movie I could possibly imagine. Um, it's got all the weird supernatural stuff. It's got just like tons of makeup. It's got um, sort of the, the weird emphasis on technology that doesn't need to exist with that, like GP, that uh, GPS in his car that's ahead of its time. Like uh, it feels, it definitely exactly. feels like a, a personal film. Everything in that movie is ahead of its time. Cannot, <laughs> cannot, cannot agree more. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's what I said. <laughs> um, you, you correctly heard me. I mean, now, uh, Granted, do I like uh, Digital Underground? Of course. Of course, you have ears. Yeah. Um, it's a great song. <laughs> well, I mean, all around the world, it's the same song. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's really, really abysmal. I, I'm, I'm glad you like it, but it is I, just... I, I am too. How dark it is and... <laughs> how weird and fucked up it is. That's what makes nothing but trouble, nothing but trouble. And I love that there was a time when this movie could get made with the budget it had. And I don't know. I just love everything about it. I don't know if it's that I've seen it a hundred times starting from when I was a kid. And I I literally laughed out loud four times at a movie that I've seen a hundred times watching it the other day. So that's why it's, uh, it's stayed close to my heart for so long. And I just wanted to say, Quick Change was 1990. Nothing But Trouble is 1991. A lot of weird similarities, uh, like street sign collages in both. Now, Quick Change ends with a shot pulling out of New York. Yeah. Right? And Nothing But Trouble starts at nighttime going in back into New York. So <laughs> my theory is these movies exist in the same universe. <laughs> Oh my. I, think, I think that's going to send send shockwaves. Well, Quick Change doesn't end with Chevy Chase turning into Bugs Bunny. 
running into the wall for no reason. Well, <laughs> we got to find the movie that starts with that. See where the universe continues. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. This could be our Pixar theory. This could be yeah. the stuff that makes yeah. this podcast finally go viral. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I am just not a fan of that abrasive kind of loud humor. Uh, unless yes. it's directed by David Wayne, then I give it a pass, obviously. Like, Wet Hot American Summer is my favorite comedy of all time. And when people tell me that they just don't find it that funny, I, it's not something I can argue. I just think it's hysterical from beginning to end. Um, it, it's it, it's weird, because it that watching Nothing But Trouble does make me feel like, kind of gross. And yeah. it, it's, and it's this, really unpleasant. It's, it's, it's like watching... like be- it's the sort of thing that if it were this unpleasant and also funny, I would adore it just because it's so because I like I like that combination. But yeah. because it's so unfunny, it just it's sort of exhausting. I'll um, I'll take like the people under the stairs, you know, a movie where people are trapped in a house, and I think that's funnier and weirder and kind of more effective. I, so I will say this about nothing but trouble. Um, number one, I think the uh, I think the uh, <laughs> the, the thing about it is it's clearly sort of a it's kind of a movie that only gets made because it was the beginning of the 90s and studios didn't really know yet like the sort of 80s comedy has begun sort of spinning its wheels and the sort of uh, um, Mike Myers, uh, Adam Sandler, uh, new class of SNL mm-hmm. sort of they had not yet become movie stars Um which which sort of began to set the stage for like the the you know like Billy Madison and Wayne's World and films like that those sort of set the stage for what '90s comedies would look like, um, and so it is fun it is interesting that a movie like this exists and sometimes weirdness that happens because the studios don't really know what's going on can be really great um, and clearly for Frank this is an example of that and then sometimes it can be just really tone deaf and weird and just baffling as to how it exists. And that's how it is for me and Jim. Um, I will also say I can understand why you love this movie, Frank, if only because like for the same reason, I understand why people would be such diehard juggalos, which is anything, <laughs> any, anything that is so singular yeah. of itself. Um, there once something like, Clearly, Dan Aykroyd has this sensibility because this is the movie he made, um, and he was given a lot of leeway to make the exact movie he wanted to make. So, some there has to be someone out there whose sensibility matches with his so perfectly that they they see this movie and it just hits all the right buttons. The same way that, like, there can be uh, you know someone who's just like kind of into horror movies and kind of into rap and kind of into being a, a lower class white person and sort of into mythology but is sort of anti-nerd like there's mm-hmm. a there's a lot of different details that go into the making of why someone would listen to the insane clown posse and go holy shit this is everything i ever wanted um <laughs> because and it's and it's so singular i mean now there's a, it's weird there's a whole subgenre of rap that's clown rappers but when they came out there was nothing like them so it makes total sense that they became such a huge cult phenomenon so i get it frank uh even though the, for me I mean, I have seen this movie to completion once. Um, if I recall, uh, there is actually a Goosebumps uh, uh, book uh, that that uh, is sort of, I think, kind of rips this off a little bit. Where hmm. instead of instead of being like pulled over for a traffic ticket and they get stuck in this weird manner that's a prison that's 
whatever, a fun house of horror. Um, it's an amusement park, but it has the same kind of structure where they're trying to get out and they can't get out. And then by the time they finally get out, uh, they realize that they have not escaped just because they've escaped the house um, or in this in that case, amusement park. So uh, it's, it was influential in that way. Arl Stein wrote a book about it. <laughs> and it goes, it, it escape from nightmare land or something like that. Wow. I, I mean, I, I, I'm with you, Patrick. I, I can understand why somebody would appreciate this movie. It, it, it's just one of those things that just does not click with me at all. And <clears throat> I don't know. I, I, Chubby Chase looks bored, and I don't <laughs> like. And just some of the lines, like a birthday cake full of spiders or whatever. That's not funny. But I, oh I, yes, it is. I know. <laughs> I know you love it, Frank. It's cool. Do you, oh, Frank? Uh, that is actually an interesting. Uh, point, Frank. How do you feel about that era of Chevy Chase? This is, I think, a pretty abysmal era for Chevy Chase. Yeah, I'm not even the hugest Chevy Chase fan in general, and I'm not really the biggest Dan Aykroyd fan in general. I was when I was a kid, but over time, I, you know, I think they're okay. They have their moments, mm-hmm. and I mean, when I think of Dan Aykroyd movies around this time, I think of my stepmother is an alien and <laughs> stuff like that, and it's pretty yeah. bad stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not super crazy about Chevy Chase either. I like Fletch, I like Caddyshack, but not much else other than this movie. I like Funny Farm. I I like it. I want to like it. I, it's it's just okay for me. Yeah. Yeah, see this is yeah, this was the era of Chevy Chase where it's like Caddyshack 2, oh. and Memoirs of an Invisible Man and Cops oh, and yeah. Robbers. Like it was just a bad bad era for uh, Chevy Chase. Wow. Well, let's move on. Because uh, I want to talk a little about TV. I watched an onslaught of different things throughout the past couple weeks, um, but like I, I just am constantly impressed. Okay, you know, I go from one season of a show and it's ending. And it's like, oh, now what? I mean, obviously, I could watch more movies, but me and my roommate, we we sort of get into this routine of you know, after a hard days of work, we have a couple beers and watch TV, which is pretty normal. And it's not something I ever thought like, oh, I'm going to make this my thing uh including like getting really hardcore into uh you know food reality shows and cooking competitions and things like that um and i even wind up wound up watching the uh season finale of the bachelor this uh this year nice and it was one of the most like i think it was harder to watch than the act of killing uh it was just like so unnerving, and I'd, I'd never been that angry watching. I mean, I don't watch a lot of those types of shows, but this guy was such a douchebag in every way. And like, even the audience couldn't believe some of the things that he was saying and doing. And the host of the show was kind of befuddled because he even said during a commercial break, out of all, like, I've been doing this for 12 years. And we've never had, like, this kind of reaction, this kind of response, and this... Because he's just out and out not saying that he loves the person that he chose. Which is just a weird thing. Because that's how the seasons always end. It ends with, I found the girl I really want, and I love her, and it's gonna be great. But he's, like, so emotionally closed off, he just refuses to, like, come out and say that... And even after the audience is egging him on... Can you believe, like, I really got into this... I am so weirded out right now. I know it's like bizarre that world. Time, that whole time I was following you, 
I'm like, yeah, it is gross and weird. The Bachelor's super creepy. It's this weird <laughs> kind of medieval, like, it's this weird medieval kind of almost feeling like auction of women where it's just it's like... It's terrible. And it sort of pitches in. But then you were like, oh, yeah, I was just so mad the whole time because he wouldn't say that he loved her. And he was just being a real jerk. <laughs> he was so emotionally closed off that he wouldn't say that he loved the prize that he won on a game show. I just felt <laughs> bad for the girl. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm 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 with Patrick on this one. I I watch The Bachelor religiously. It's my favorite ironic show of all time. I yeah. love how everyone says the same things over and over again. Every extreme sporting challenge is an analogy <laughs> for if we can get through this, we can get through anything. It is just the same thing every time, and I love it. And that's why I love the ending to this year's Bachelor because it uh, it could be Juan Pablo is a complete asshole, emotionally detached, yeah. just not, you know, not getting into the, what the bachelor's all about, or he's the next Andy Kaufman, which is how I choose to. Ooh, ooh I like that. Mm. But, okay, can we all agree that you have to be sort of a disturbed person in some way to actually emotionally engage in that, not as a viewer, but as a, a as a participant, like yeah. you have to be emotionally yeah. disturbed to engage in it. Like, wouldn't that just make him more normal that he isn't engaging in that way? I totally agree. And the fact that you're deciding whether you want to marry someone after group dating them for Mm -hmm. three months, that's the most realistic conclusion to The Bachelor ever. And they made him feel like a piece of shit about it. So, yeah, uh, it it was a great finale. Just why I love the show. Yeah, it, it, it got my sort of psychoanalytical mind going at times, just seeing, like, how he... It does seem, I could see that kind of like Andy Kaufman interpretation where it's, is he really, is he really like this or, you know, does he sincerely not want to participate and, you know, make everybody happy, which is just a really interesting kind of uh, approach that I wasn't expecting because I've always heard like, oh, it's, you know, things usually work out for everybody and he's he's sort of like just being uh, kind of an anarchist. (laughs) Like, just not really, like, giving a fuck, which is nuts. You know, in, in an anarchist version of The Bachelor, the the uh, the the the, uh, the, the, the lucky ladies, they'd be able to date each other. Well, like, only in all. an anarchist version. I think, I think The Bachelor's more feudalism. <laughs> well, and also everybody's talked ad nauseum about True Detective, and for good reason, because it's it's one of the best seasons of television I've ever seen. Do Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey get married at the end? I wish they could have. They should have. You got. You got to. You got to catch up on that one, Patrick. It's, I don't have HBO. Well, I'll send it to you. Okay. I'll send you HBO in the mail. Thank you for sending me HBO in the mail. But um, the, but okay, the no, real but surprise. Me, how, okay. Can you describe a little more like what you mean by because when you the way you first described it, you made it sound like you were mad at him for not playing along. And now you're saying, like, is he really like this in real life? Like, what do you mean? Is he really like what? Uh, just, it's weird because, it, like, how his communication skills um, and how off-putting he is to almost everybody was just not at all how it's been in the past, according to my roommate, Heather. It, it, it's, it was like just watching a kind of a bizarre world version of The Bachelor, and I was just, I was consistently like shocked because, 
you know, everybody's expecting one thing and they're not getting that at all. And including making the girl that he chose visibly uncomfortable. I mean, she might have just been putting on her smile, but like I could tell, like this is this is awkward because a lot of people, including the uh, the the women that he you know had to let go, were all there in the audience too, sort of like <laughs> rolling their eyes, giving weird looks, and I just could not necessarily like figure out what the deal was with him, like. And it's funny because like I was uh, shopping today, and of course, People Magazine on the cover, it's like. I am not this jerk that everybody thinks I am, you know? So it's it's just weird. I, I mean, you don't even have to watch the whole season. I think you should just watch the finale to see what I'm talking about. Probably won't. Probably not. <laughs> but thank you. I know. But I, 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 I mean, you, you know me. I can't watch any reality TV. Yeah. The, like, just on the basis of the filmmaking involved and the editing – and just the way that narrative is told in reality TV, it makes my skin crawl. I can't watch any reality TV. I have something you might like. What's it's a that? show called The Americans. And it takes place in the 80s during the Reagan administration. Uh, a nuclear war scare is breaking out. And uh, they wind up incorporating actual history, including like Reagan's assassination attempt. Um, so, I mean, it's... It's almost a little bit Mad Men-esque in that way, but it's an incredibly well-done spy espionage thriller with, you know, it, it captures that era really beautifully, and it, it, it follows this couple that work for the KGB who come to America um, under the guise as Americans, obviously, and sort of uh, plan to infiltrate the CIA, get a hold of some secrets, and try and get ahead in, in the game and stuff. So it's it's this really cool spy thriller show that's kind of slick sometimes and but it has the procedural element because we get to see what the cia is doing and the interesting twist is that their new neighbor happens to work for the cia uh and he's trying to figure out who the spies are without knowing that you know it's the next door neighbors so in a weird way like this show is tapped into my love of the spy genre which kind of goes all the way back to me loving cloak and dagger as a kid but uh, it does focus a lot on family dynamics and keeping secrets, and there's just some really good set pieces that are incredibly nail-biting at times. And every episode, something comes up that kind of freaks you out that doesn't feel fin- manipulative at all. I, I, th- I, like, I really got sick of Homeland for a while because of its implausibility, and it, some of the subplots were just not nearly as interesting as they were early on. This is sort of taken over as like that kind of interesting espionage political show that, you know, it, like one of the surprises too is some of the pop song cues are not at all what you'd expect. Like they use an obscure Cure song uh, and just like just some choices on this show are really interesting. And the creator himself was a former CIA operative. Uh, I, I just, this is one of the new sort of addictive shows that uh, I'm only through the first season and I hear season two is even better. Is this on uh, Netflix? It's on FX. I don't think okay. it's on Netflix yet. I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't have. I don't. I don't have a cable or network TV. So if it's not online, I can't watch it. I'll send but it. It, sound, to the it mail. sounds good. You, you, thank you. You don't have to. Thank you. I want to. I know, but I don't want to uh, pirate television. Okay. <laughs> like, I like, there's something about if I if I get started doing that, then I got to do it all the time, and then it just becomes a thing. So, Patrick, you have a lot to catch up on, I think. 
I, I have tons to catch up on. Oh boy, I, uh, I don't watch any TV shows. You're, uh, you're, you're probably smart. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm impatient. Is the Americans good right away, or is it yes. one of those shows where it's okay? Yes. Well, then I'll give it a chance. Uh, I, I have no patience for for television, unfortunately. I did finish the. Uh, I did finish Breaking Bad. Finally. Mm-hmm. You're gonna now. That's you can really go back good. and listen to the uh, bonus episode I did with Ren. Yeah. Exactly. That's cool. Uh, that last season is a bummer. Uh, um, I liked it. No, no, it's a it's a good season. I just I still maintain that it's much better as sort of a fun crime action show than it is as a character study. Um, mm, yeah, and I that guess. last that last season is all the character study stuff, and it's not bad at all. But it's also just not as fun. <laughs> it's a real bummer. It's just it's like oh, we we're having fun like biting our nails and seeing how you know. Seeing how Walter was gonna squirm his way out of this one with science, and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden it's just like, oh, you're history's greatest monster. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's a bummer. <laughs> it's a really good ending though, and it wasn't spoiled for me somehow. It's nice. it, it's, it's been uh, you know I think that show ended in like October, and I only just finished watching it now that it now that the whole final season's on Netflix, and uh, it's uh, it, it wasn't spoiled, so that was that was nice too. Apparently, it's possible, people. Yeah, and after watching The Sopranos, finally, I'm I no longer ha- you know if I've ever said that Breaking Bad's my favorite television show in previous episodes, just erase that part from. Is it the is it Sopranos now? Yeah, yeah. Have you watched Wire in its entirety? No. Okay, I will. That's, it's it's that's the next one. It's on the docket. Yeah. So, how many movies do you have to talk about? Oh, I have sixteen movies. to Damn. Talk about. However, uh, well, how are we going to get through this with, without it being a nine-hour show? Uh, maybe we could do a lightning round! Woohoo! A vacation to Hawaii! Nice. Okay, so uh, we're going to... Actually, it's 15, because uh, I kind of already talked about surviving edged weapons. Okay. Let me get my ding. Sure, sure. Okay. And when are when are when are you ready? Uh, I'm ready whenever you are. Okay. Fifteen seconds. I'll be ready. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> hear any good music lately? Mm, new Afghan wigs is coming out. I'm excited. Oh, that's nice. Okay, go. Okay. Hey, Funland is the first one. That's uh, this weird movie from 1987. It's kind of a comedy. Kind of not. It takes place in an amusement park. It gets sold to the mafia. It's super low budget, and it has Squiggy or whatever from Laverne and Shirley as this <laughs> clown who's in a pizza costume. It's really horrible. But it was in the horror section of my video store. It's not a horror movie at all. It kind of just ends with him snapping and uh, killing a bunch of mafia people from a high tower inside of the amusement park, uh, sniping at them. And he talks to his little pizza puppet friend. Um, the Raid. I saw The Raid finally. It's good. It's wow. not nearly as nonstop ass-kicking as sort of its reputation implies. There is a lot of bullshit. And The Raid was kind of sold to me as, oh, it's the movie with no bullshit. It's just nonstop action. But And to be fair, all the fight scenes are incredible. The, all the fight scenes in action in The Raid's great. But all of the stuff where it's like, you're my brother. And, oh, he has a baby on the way. Yeah. And, oh, the, the, the criminal mind. And all that stuff is just the worst. Um uh, I, I rewatched Bound. Uh, Bound is still an amazing movie. I mm-hmm. still love Bound. I think it might actually secretly be my favorite Wachowski's movie. 
if only because um, it's their touch uh, for a noir thriller like that. Um, their kind of humanist, uh, empathetic touch is really welcome. Uh, you really care about the characters, and for yeah. you, that doesn't often happen in movies where they're just tightening the screws. Um, and uh, it's a yeah, it's a moving love story with really good characters. Uh, I watched The Haunted Castle, which is a George Melier uh, film, a silent film, uh, in which a man has a sword fight with Satan. Um, and it's a Melier film. I was sort of interested in seeing what the oldest horror movies ever were, and I found that Melier did a couple of them. Um, this one originally was called House of the Devil, uh, and it's about as exciting as the Ty West movie. Um, and it gets it, and it gets it done in three minutes. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and say this is the better House of the Devil. Ugh. <laughs> uh, I have another one he did, which is I think even better, and you should look up on YouTube. It's called The Infernal Boiling Pot, and all it is is a little goblin who dances around and picks up people and throws them into a pot where they boil alive. Um, and he throws three people in, and then their ghosts come out, and it's all hand colored. And the special effects—they do some double exposure for the ghost effects. It's really fun. It basically looks like uh, something like stock footage that would be in a Rob Zombie music video. It's fantastic. Uh, From Beyond the Grave is an Amicus uh, anthology movie um, mm. for the same the same uh, studio that made the Tales from the Crypt anthology movie or, and uh, Doctor. Not Dr. Tongue's House of Horrors, but something like that. Um, uh, it's, it's all right. It's like an anthology movie where it's kind of uh, hit and miss. But uh, I will say that the second story with Donald Pleasance in it is the most British horror thing I've ever seen ever. Uh, and you can kind of say that for all of them. It's super British, which is kind of cute and fun. Um, there's The uh, Man Who Knew Too Much, which is the, uh, the uh, original Hitchcock. Hitchcock film, not the remake. Uh, with uh, Jim, Jimmy Stewart. I think it's really good. It's very odd because uh, it kind of has a weird sense of humor to it, um, but then it ends with this like super uh, like down-to-earth and realistic gunfight that's really naturalistic and shocking. Um, and Peter Lorre is the greatest, and basically every, horror, every action movie villain you've ever seen is based on Peter Lorre. The next movie is Vincent, which is the short film by Tim Burton. It is incredible. Um, hmm. It's really my favorite, uh, my favorite execution of Tim Burton's aesthetic. Um, and as someone who adores Vincent Price, uh, it means a lot to me. And someone who is a mopey child, uh, I certainly uh, relate to it. And I think it hits a lot of the things that Tim Burton hits, but it hits it better than a lot of his later films. I next watched a uh, Vincent Price film, Tales of Terror, which is a Roger Corman, one of Roger Corman's many Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, uh, one of the early ones. Uh, The first and the last story aren't that good, but the middle story is The Black Cat, where Peter Lorre appears once again as a stumbling drunkard, um, and uh, Vincent Price plays the most flamboyantly gay wine taster you've ever seen in your life. And he has this crazy face he makes every time he tastes wine. It's amazing. Um, and that middle story is the best part. Uh, I saw Yandek on, uh, Yandek on Corwood, uh, which is a documentary about the artist Yandek. Jim, do you know Yandek? No. Okay, well, he's an outsider artist. He basically had, had very prolific – he's – been making two records a year since the 70s hmm. and they're very strange recorded on tape with his own special guitar tuning Ooh. and it's basically people talking about Yandek. If you don't know anything about him, I'd recommend it, but as a documentary itself, it's not great. He makes this kind of weird, atonal, haunting uh, outsider folk music that's really really fascinating. I watched The Money Pit, uh, yes. which is really good. 
Uh, I, I'm honestly not a huge fan of Tom Hanks as a comedic actor. Um, and I think he's great in this. Um, and it's sort of in the tradition of like the long, long trailer or Buster Keaton's one week where it's just watching this married couple or in this case, they're not married, but they're close enough. Uh, I love it when the bathtub crashes through the floor. Sorry. Oh, it's it's the best scene. And, uh, you know, it's not as good as those two movies because there's a lot of subplots and stuff you don't care about. But all of the scenes where the house is just getting destroyed are fantastic. Uh, Exit through the gift shop is still one of my favorite documentaries ever. Uh, It is so exciting and entertaining from start to finish. Uh, it every time I watch it, I just the first thing I want to do is run outside uh, and then find a wall and paint on it. Um, it's really it's just amazing, and the fact that it's a really brilliant satire of the world of art and commercialization and all that—that's sort of just gravy on top of just watching these people climbing up uh, and doing their thing and and and, uh, and you know and spray painting all that stuff. It's just incredible to watch. Gravy uh, on top of the cake. Exactly. It's gravy on top of a delicious gravy cake. Uh, I watched Zapped, which is the Scott Bayo movie where it's basically Carrie reimagined as a sex comedy. Oh, God. And uh, like most 80s sex comedies, it's mostly sexual assault. Mm-hmm. He uses his telekinesis mostly to undress women in public. What a um, shock. Which is really creepy. It feels like Hollow Man kind of, uh, <laughs> which is unfortunate. Uh, it has its, it has little moments of weirdness, like where he's making a little ventriloquist dummy uh, animate and attack his parents. That's funny. And uh, Scatman Crothers has a hilarious dream sequence. I watched Waking Ned Divine on um, St. Patrick's Day. Um, it's a very cute movie. It's kind of cloying. Um, and uh, it's kind of like it, it feels a little almost borderline offensive for how quaint how quaint and enchanting it wants you to find this little village. But I really did find it quaint and enchanting. Um, and I think all the characters are very nice and it's a pleasant experience, even if it isn't, you know, a particularly brilliant, uh, comedy. And then I watched, uh, along with watching, uh, surviving edged weapons, I watched the notorious, uh, 1964 driver's ed video, red asphalt, uh, which is just footage of highway wrecks. Um, I watched the 19, there's many versions that have come out. The last one being in 2006, I watched the 1964 one thinking, Oh, at least this one won't gross me out. But uh, it, it ends with a corpse whose jaw is hanging off of his face. So uh, that, 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 that plan didn't work out, and it really ruined my day. Um, yeah, it's really gruesome and, and horrible, and uh, it's amazing that they show that to kids. Thank you! <laughs> lightning round. Yeah. Way to go. Yeah. <sighs> Oops. Sorry. You good? Yeah, I, just, I didn't know it was a double, <laughs> double horn. Uh-huh. Holy crap! You you had some fun, didn't you? I did. I yeah. did. And in addition to the Spielberg movies I watch, and in addition to the Breaking Bad and all that, uh, I've been watching a lot of movies, writing them, writing all about them on the Letterboxd. Frank, you got to follow me on Letterboxd. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at you right now. <laughs> I'm, about follow, <laughs> I'm about to follow you. Awesome, awesome. I need I need policing. Yeah, um, we all do because because my my rating my rating system is letter grades. And uh, Letterbox makes you use stars, and I have never found a satisfactory way to translate the two. I'm waiting so. for a Film Junk bonus episode that's like a three-hour discussion on ratings and how they convert what to what and their discrepancies and how they want to do f- uh, five stars instead of four. And it's just, I love that. It comes up in every episode. <laughs> it's great. It's literally the craziest, most arbitrary argument you could ever have. <laughs> That's why it's so important. Certainly. 
Oh boy. I think we're ready to move on to some more laughs, huh? I think we I think we are. I need to I need to give my voice a little break. Yeah. Uh, why don't we take a fight? Wait, I don't need to announce that on the show. Let's move on to the director of the episode. Let them, they, they don't know that we take five-minute breaks in between the two segments. That's true. No one wants to know how the sausage is made. Somebody, right? is- somebody thought we made the songs on the spot. Remember? That would be incredible. If it's a comedy that's set in Omaha... The narcissist, he's pissed and driving in his car. There's only one director it could be. If it's Laura Dern, Jack Nicholson, or Paul Giamatti, Alexander Payne. Ever since his debut, Alexander Payne wrote for Jim Taylor to Alexander Payne. Now let's end the refrain. No. Uh, so in 1996, uh, Alexander Payne's first movie came out, Citizen Ruth, uh, originally titled The Devil Inside, uh, <laughs> then changed to Meet Ruth Stoops. Uh, then the title was changed to Precious, which I think he named it only out of bitter irony and sort of as a fuck you to Miramax for wanting him to change the title of the movie in the first place. Uh, and uh, and then finally it got changed to Citizen Ruth which it is now Um, Citizen Ruth is easily Alexander Payne's least seen uh, film Um, it made quite a splash as it is so abrasive and and so uh, controversial Uh, well I I, I don't think it was successful enough to actually garner any controversy but it's very uh, incisive um, uh, satire um, not just of the abortion debate, but more of sort of American public policy in general and sort of the ways that uh, people stick to uh, their uh, sides and, and their their uh, their ethics and their ideas of morality um, and how they manipulate others using them. Um, it is super different than what you would come to associate with Alexander Payne. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not like it's not even like election. It has it has sort of that darkness to it, and it has that bitterness to it, um, and that bile. But it but it but there is really no other movie in Alexander's Payne filmography that is like Citizen Ruth. Um, and if you were to you know if if the only Alexander Payne movie I had seen was Citizen, if I let's say I came to the future from uh, 1996 and I had just seen Citizen Ruth. And you just wanted to say, "Oh, you wanted to see you want to see Alexander Payne's uh, you want to see what he's up to now." And you showed me The Descendants and Nebraska. I I would think you were putting me on. I wouldn't believe it. It's hard to believe they're the same director. Um, they're so wildly different. I mean, there's a there's a progression there that makes it easier to swallow. But so this is my favorite Alexander Payne movie. I think this is his best film. I think it is honestly, other than. Dr. Strangelove, I think it's the best satirical comedy I've ever seen ever. Um, it is utterly fearless. <laughs> in, in, in the, and it accomplishes uh, what is often impossible to accomplish, which is it satirizes two sides of a very divisive issue mm-hmm. without 
um, without sort of coming to sort of like like a, a uh, libertarian kind of South Park. Like, you know, South Park episodes, the, the moral they always tend to come to is everybody's equally wrong. And it's just sort of like, you're all stupid. And which is why South Park's so popular with teenagers, because that's sort of the the main <laughs> the main political belief of most teenagers is you're all stupid. Um, and so Citizen Ruth is able to satirize, you know, all sides of of the abortion issue and of the general how, you know, uh, issues like that are discussed in a, in America without sort of not taking a stance. Um, it takes a pretty hard line stance. I think the movie is, if you had to pick one or the other, I think the movie's pro-choice. Um, yeah. But more, but more importantly, it's not afraid to. It's the pro-choice movie that doesn't show a woman <laughs> like it does not show a sympathetic woman who just needs you know, who needs this procedure or else her life will be ruined. It shows a woman who is a monster uh, and is the least sympathetic, not a victim at all. Um, well, I mean, in this, they're, they're all victimizers and, and they're all, <laughs> they're all horrible people in this movie. Um, but, uh, but it doesn't feel like a uh, Todd Salon's kind of a thing where um, it's sort of just utter nihilism without a point. Uh, in this, the sort of rampant negativity and blackness uh, that, uh, which is how Alexander Payne sort of interprets the Midwest in this movie, it, it comes to it's for a very specific purpose. And I don't know, I just think this movie's brilliant. It's interesting you bring up Todd Salons because um, Palindromes was a movie that kind of got lost in its kind of gimmickry with choosing to have uh, the main character played by several different actors. Uh, it's several several different actresses at different times, but it was trying to, uh, you know, do the do the salon's take on, uh, you know, just what happens when a younger child gets pregnant, and that movie I felt com- a complete disconnect with, and I just feel like he's a filmmaker who started out really strong, and then I don't know, just not necessarily became a parody of himself, but something got lost in his subsequent films, especially, like, due to his characterization, there's, he just, you know, he lost his way. And I will admit that it'd be interesting if Alexander Payne decided to, you know, take a a note from himself and look at his earlier films and, you know, tap into that darkness more than his more recent stuff. That would be almost preferable for me, even though I have actually liked uh, Nebraska, especially, but I love Citizen Ruth, and I've seen I've seen it three times, and I seem to love it more every time. Um, he has that's the thing we'll probably talk about is how he treats his characters because a lot of people feel um, that he condescends a little bit, and he doesn't. He, like I read a couple of reviews that really harped upon how. You know, it's a screwball comedy that treats a lot of the uh, side characters as caricatures. Um, And that's, you know, that's interesting to note, like, in a satire, like, where's the right balance to where, you know, it's more connected to reality and you can, you know, understand every character's plight and stuff. Uh, I I actually thought of Billy Wilder a little bit, too, with uh, Citizen Roof, with something like Ace in a Hole in terms of how... Uh, intensely acerbic and, you know, cynical at times, but 
I I think he uh, he he has glimpses of humanity throughout even his earlier films that I really identify with. He f- he finds that right balance of tone for me in pretty much everything. I I will say that like he gets a little bit too bogged down in sentimentality later on, but um, I th- what I gravitate towards here the most, and it's interesting talking about uh, earlier a film like Smooth Talk. I thought Laura, Laura Dern, even you know, at age sixteen, was phenomenal. This is like this is this is something she should have won awards for this. This is one of the most fearless performances I've ever seen, and I can't believe like some of the places she decides to go. And I, I just I understand like people having kind of like a cynical view on, uh, you know, that he is not taking either side and maybe doesn't have, like, a stance uh, on the issue. But I think that's important that he sort of lives in the gray area a little bit. I think he's satirizing extremism, and he focuses on characters that have a tendency to act selfish under the disguise of being altruistic and selfless. And I think that he sees the hypocrisy in that, and that's kind of what I get out of this movie, too. In addition, it's, you know, like, there's just stuff in here that... Um, is really powerful too. I mean, the the the, the scene where you know she's be- trying to get coerced, and I that's you posted that on Facebook fairly recently, Patrick. That entire scene is probably one of the highlights of Payne's entire filmography for me because it's not something you would see in any comedy. And this is the blackest of black comedies, but yet I still feel uh, empathy for her, despite of her not being. A good person, and that's kind of a rare thing to experience for me, and that's probably just becoming you know more and more a part of my everyday you know career prospects too. Is just like you have to have sympathy for somebody completely lost in their own shit. Um, but at the same time, I think this is one of the best satires ever made too. So I completely agree. Uh, I only saw Citizen Ruth for the first time probably six months ago, which probably changes the way you view the movie depending on the order you watch alexander Payne stuff as yeah. as patrick's pointed out so i like it a lot to say i would say i love all six of his movies there's just something about alexander Payne's style uh i i don't find his newer stuff as sentimental it, there's sentimental aspects but i also still find dark aspects in those movies if i think of descendants there's people selfishly reaming out a, a comatose body with cuts to this uh, a, a body that not doesn't even look human anymore like that's dark filmmaking in my opinion uh but i will say citizen ruth as patrick said and jim the way it sat satirizes hypocrisy it, as jim said extremism is fantastic and the way it sums it up perfectly is the ending. Uh, the ending mm-hmm. is my favorite is my favorite thing about Citizen Ruth. Her escaping without a person knowing who she is, what she's about. She just walks out anonymously as two causes battle each other is the perfect ending. Yeah. I, I absolutely love it. And I love her performance as well. I think you guys are spot on. Uh, in terms of Alexander Payne's filmography, I, I, we should probably point out this is the only movie that he wrote. Like, but without being based on prior materials. So that might be a reason for the slight difference in tone. Uh, but filmmaking-wise, it feels really similar to his other stuff to me. Uh, where it differs is the fact that it's 
more of a satire than any of his other movies. Uh, I would say there's a hint of satire to Election as well, maybe more than a hint, but the rest of the movies are kind of satire-free, I would say. Uh, I just think, again, for Alexander Payne, great casting, just such a, a realistic look at the world, something that no one decides to put on camera. It, it's so raw in the way he shoots his things. Uh, and funny. He just has a way of balancing drama, hum- humanity, and comedy. It, it's the perfect blend, and I, I don't know, it just... Something about the way he makes movies. I remember the first time I saw Election in theaters. Yeah. And, and when it cuts to the scene, the, the teacher saying her pussy gets so wet, <laughs> drinking Diet Mug, I almost lost my mind. I, I, I was so blown away by that. It just, he stuck, his style like that has just stuck with me forever. And it's why he's one of my favorite filmmakers ever. Um, I, 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 I should say, I actually... I have a book that's all interviews with screenwriters, and I recently read an interview with Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor that was about election, and they talked about sort of their process and how they started working together. And in that, they mentioned Citizen Ruth, and part of why, where, how they bonded together, Jim Taylor being the screenwriter that uh, Alexander Payne has worked with on every movie except for Descendants and Nebraska. Um, uh, but... The way that those two bonded was they would share newspaper articles that they found hilarious um, or whatever. And they would like, you know, they would talk shit about them or they they just talk about how crazy something was. So Citizen Ruth is actually based on a true story in that uh, they read a newspaper article about a woman who uh, and it didn't go. They didn't go into detail in the interview as to how much of it is true. But basically the premise of a woman who is offered by a judge leniency if she gets an abortion um, was an actual thing that happened. And in fact, uh, Alexander Payne uh, drove out uh, and spent a couple days in the town where it happened to do research for the script. Um, so, and I do think that that kind of shows, I mean, it, all of his film, most of his films take place in Nebraska. And I think Alexander Payne has an eye for the Midwest uh, that no one really does, which is a lot of people, um, they, uh, they either sort of, they want to capture the sort of romantic blue collar nature of the, of the Midwest, or they want to just completely savage it as, uh, Oh, it's the in-between States and a bunch of yokels, just dummies. Yeah. But, and, which is, you know, it's a, it's a very sort of LA kind of a thing. But the thing is he's from Nebraska and he grew up in Nebraska and he's still, I, he, I don't know if he lives in Nebraska necessarily, but he like maintains a movie theater, uh, like an art house movie theater in Nebraska. Like he has a lot of connection to it. And so there's a level of specificity um, to his environments uh, that quit, that grounds them. Right. I think so like even just the way that he shoots like behind buildings, um, like you never see behind buildings in a small town. Uh, in any other movie, you always see the main street and you see all the storefronts or whatever. But he'll sh- but he'll always have characters going behind buildings. You know whether it's Ruth uh, going to Huff Paint or um, you know just some of the shots of strip malls and stuff in Election or Nebraska or whatever, um, or even about Schmidt. Like he really uh, captures it uh, in a different way, and it's I think it's with an eye of specificity. I yeah, I would add- had- sorry, Pat. I would add especially in the art direction and set design, even the, the houses of characters 
and uh, he cited specifically capturing the look of a real high school in election, mm-hmm. uh, the types of cars that people drive. Everything just seems grounded perfectly. And again, it's something that has attracted me to his films since they started. I, yeah, I, and I think it, he has the same art director or set designer or production designer. Um, he's had the same one since Citizen Ruth. Um, and I don't, I mean, Descendants is a very interesting. Uh, location, but I don't think he captures Hawaii necessarily the same way he captures Nebraska, but I do think the Descendants, you can say, has a similar sort of focus on location um, uh, being an important part of his filmmaking. Um, And I think, yeah, there's just a level of specificity to the uh, the Christian sort of family he's staying with, um, and just their den with that, you know, with that pull-out bed and the uh, the red vest with the ask me button on it, um, and in that it, I think to me that's how the movie can go as huge as it does and almost cartoonish, and it almost like at the end the two the two uh, you know the two sides of the debate literally just auctioning off <laughs> you know <laughs> what what will happen to Ruth's baby is you know it's it's a really great image of sort of the way that money dictates uh, discussion in America. But it also is cartoonish. It looks, it almost feels like a political cartoon. Yeah. But I think, I think the way that he gets away with that is by, yeah, that level of specificity grounding everything. Yeah, he's, he's one of those great attention to detail filmmakers, like, you know, just choosing certain uh, wardrobe, like jean jackets and puffy sweaters or the crucifixes, white sneakers, oversized glasses and uh, like even just you know choosing uh, like an election you know having you know matthew broderick sit at a steakhouse with an early bird special uh you know you've mentioned his locations and just his choices that really ground it in reality and you know there's just been criticism about like some most of his characters are a little too cartoonish and you can't like sense their humanity because of how he depicts them. And it's an interesting point that I think was even addressed in that email about how uh, a lot of filmmakers kind of struggle at times. What email is that, Jim? Uh, I think it was an email we got from a guy named Al. Yes. Yeah. I don't have it right in front of me, which I should have had done already, but (laughs) do you have it in front of you? Yes, I do. Yeah. I think he brings up an interesting point in terms of, uh, like he, he, filmmakers' he responsibility walk- to not laugh at their characters in in their like neuroses and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, so Al, who wrote us an email about uh, the uh, about Alexander Payne, uh, says that he's overwhelmed by the sense that he presents a pathetic, emotionally troubled, and unlikable people as he's uh, as though he's examining them under a microscope and he wallows in the su- suffering of the characters while encouraging the audience to laugh at them. Um, and hmm. I, uh, I mean, I think he does that, but I, I don't agree that that's a bad thing. Uh, it, it appears, I mean, I think Al, uh, in his interview, he says, uh, uh, neurotic, be- uh, even in blue Jasmine, I felt Woody Allen was asking us to empathize with Kate Blanchett while also, while also laughing at her neurosis. Hmm. Neurotic behavior is not something I find particu- I particularly enjoy listening to or watching, and since high-energy approach seems to call attention to itself, it feels off-putting. Is this to say, look at me, look at me, hear me, hear me? 
Um, and I mean, yeah, well, some people are like that in the real world. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that just seems to be more of a, a complaint against just that personality type. You, yeah. That you like to see rather than should that person never be represented in film. I think, uh, especially something like citizen Ruth, um, is a, is a great example of, uh, narcissism in, yeah. in all of the characters. And I think most of his films are examinations of narcissism in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, narcissism in the, you know, as you mentioned, Jim, narcissism in the guise of being altruistic in Citizen Ruth. Yeah. Uh, narcissism, n- narcissism in the in the uh, in the guise of sort of being uh, just in election. Matthew Broderick sort of sees sort of sees himself as someone who's writing a potential wrong. Like I think at one point yeah. he even compares what he's doing to like. Like, what if someone could could have stopped Hitler before he came to power? You know, like, <laughs> like he he sees himself as correcting a universal wrong in trying to put this put, put this poor, completely uh, narcissistic in her own way student in her place. Um, the only character in Election that isn't narcissistic is uh, Chris Klein's character, and he's a dummy. Right, uh, and I mean Chris Klein's great in that. I think but. he likes to call his characters out on their own shit, you know? And, you know, by the end, maybe they, you know, get not necessarily punished for their sins, but they, they learn a lesson, I would hope. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's great to see, you know, like Frank mentioned, the ending of Citizen Ruth, and it's just this, you know, sort of a, a statement of independence and trying to figure yourself out, even though she has no clue how to do that. Um, it's, and it's interesting, I think I read, too, that uh, Weinstein wanted the ending uh, to be a little bit more, not necessarily a happy ending, but just to, so the audience wouldn't leave feeling completely depressed. So I wonder what the original ending would have been if it would have been more darker than it is. Well, knowing, knowing Weinstein, she would have, like, admitted she was right. Uh, like, admitted that she had the miscarriage. Yeah. Um, and then it, and then everyone would have been mad at her, but then she would have gone back to Huffing Payne or whatever. But I, I want to ask you about something that you just said, Jim. Hmm. Do you think that Alexander Payne's characters learn lessons? I would because it feels like uh, almost the opposite is like almost the opposite is a defining characteristic of his films. Maybe it's they just learn to be comfortable with their narcissism. Maybe I don't know. Like I, I think what's interesting too about Matthew Broderick's character in election is that he, he feels like he's this pillar of ethics and values and that's something he harps on in this class and then of course you know he you know he's he cheats on his wife and he's just he's another narcissist who's kind of in denial um and then by the end i guess he sort of you know re- reinvents himself and accepts the fact that he's always going to be who he is um and maybe that's true of Laura Dern too to some degree i think but just by asserting herself and trying to break free from either side is a sign of some kind of growth. I mean, maybe I would, they don't learn a I, lesson, but I think they grow a little bit. I would strong. I would say the point of both election and Citizen Ruth, and debatably, and we can talk about this later about Schmidt, uh, is that the characters are the exact same place hmm. where they started, at where the, the denial that Matthew Broderick is in in election it clearly is revealed to be denial in his reaction to seeing her and that great little uh, 
twist he has at the end yeah. where it slowly goes from whatever I didn't want to say anything but then it just turns to who the fuck does she think she is and he throws his coffee at her car like that to me is he is maybe worse off than he was before um, same with Citizen Ruth she's gonna go blow that you know like like the uh, I can't remember the character's name but the uh, the, the man who gives her the 15,000 um, you know he says you know he he says, I, you and we both know that that money's only going to last you a couple days, and I think that's true. I think she's yeah. gonna, I think she's gonna blow the money. I think she, honestly, I think what's going to happen next in Citizen Ruth is that she gets picked up uh, in an alley, much like the beginning of the movie, um, in which they she has to give the money back on because oh. she took it on false pretenses, and then she goes to jail. My God, like I'm the eternal optimist, or like I hope she goes and gets help. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I'm sure she takes that fifteen thousand dollars and checks into a treatment center. No, I know, I know. I'm not delusional. Well, I'm not delusional. Frank, where do I, you stand on that? I definitely side with Patrick, and I think about Schmidt's another example. He's clearly the the moment of his speech, which which we'll get to, is him holding back what he really thinks and mm-hmm. putting things aside for the sake of that moment, which is a nice moment. But I, I do think for the most part, the characters end up in the same place in all his movies. I would use Nebraska as another example. Sure. Uh, but where I disagree with what we've been talking about is the idea of all his characters being narcissistic. Mm. I think certain characters are. To, to say, I don't even find Matthew Broderick's character that narcissistic in election, other than the fact that we're all narcissistic to some point. Who makes decisions without considering themselves or thinking about how it impacts them? That uh, I think maybe it's felt to be more narcissistic in election because of the, the, the voiceover narration by the characters, but I don't see their behavior as being necessarily completely narcissistic other than uh, Tracy, Tracy Flick. Uh, I don't think, well, every, every person in the world serves themselves to some degree. No one is only thinking about others when they do stuff, and that's kind of how I view his characters as being realistic. Some things they do for others. You could look at George Clooney's character in The Descendants. In in one way, when he confronts uh, Brian Spear, he's doing it out of narcissism. But in another respect, he's doing it as actually a service to him. Uh, and I think that's the gray area that Alexander Payne characters live in. And uh, I think you both mentioned the idea that like that's realities. There are characters who are narcissistic. There are characters who are obnoxious, and I feel like I get a balance of all those types in his movies. I, I don't feel it's it's slanted to one direction or the other. I I would agree. I mean, I would agree. I don't think I would not include The Descendants as um, a, one of his films that has a narcissist as a main character. Yeah. And I think Sideways is even a little more debatable. And I would even maybe be more optimistic than you, Frank, about Nebraska. I think Nebraska does actually have an arc in which Will Forte and his relationship and his sort of relationship with Bruce Dern, I think that changes from the start to the finish. Even though Bruce Dern is an unmovable like he's just a rock in that movie and he's yeah. not gonna change who he is. I think Will Forte realizing where that comes from through that trip and sort of realizing that you can't change who your father is. You can't change who your family is, but you can accept it and and live with it the best you can. I think that to me is his his journey. And in that case, I think he is changed. But um, I think I mean narcissist. Sure, you could say it's subjective, but I I mean there is a DSM <laughs> sort of do- a definition of narcissism, and I think 
a lot of it, it and it and you know it's when when someone's you know it, I have it actually I have uh, the definition right here is uh, someone who's excessively preoccupied with personal adequacy, power, prestige, and vanity, and I think all of those apply to um, to Matthew Broderick in election and to uh, Reese Witherspoon in election. I mean, I, I think you you think vanity vanity applies to Matthew Broderick's character. Yeah, I, I do. I think I think he cares very much about how he appears to other people. And I think that he wants to he wants everyone to see him as the person that he presents himself in that opening sort of monologue. He wants everyone to know that he's won that teacher award more than anyone else in that school. And when this student who doesn't need him challenges that idea, it's a blow to his uh Ego. vanity. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean you know, it's. I'm not saying that they're unrelatable, um, I, and I think his characters. <laughs> and it, it might be odd to say. It might sound odd to even say this, but I think part of the reason I don't like his later movies as much as his earlier films is because his characters get more and more relatable. Um, where, like, sideways, Miles is narcissistic, but he's, but uh, he's. I don't know if he would be a necessarily have narcissistic personality disorder because he's clearly struggling with it um and he tries to do good he just you know fails and he deals with the consequences but i don't think he's the kind of unrepentant but i I would say the (laughs) top no i'm good no but to the opposite the thomas hayden church character is completely narcissistic yeah Yeah. um but i mean and i wouldn't say that uh, i mean i think citizen ruth is a movie that every character is a narcissist. And I think to a, to a lesser extent, you could say that about a lot of the characters in election, but I wouldn't say that about all of Alexander Payne's movies. I think, I mean, I think he, I think he uh, finds the flaws in every character. I think as, you know, as sweet as Kathy Bates is in about Schmidt, he sees what's annoying about her too. As sweet as Dermot Mulrooney is in about Schmidt, like he sees like, he does not at all skimp on what makes Dermot Mulrooney one of the most annoying possible son-in-laws yeah. for that character. Like, I think, I mean, and I think his balance of that is good, but I just, I kind of don't, and uh, Jim compared him to Billy Wilder, and I don't, I don't think there's anyone really making movies like that anymore that has the balance. I think that, like, you, I think you need a balance of darkness and lightness, and I think you need a balance of pessimism um, and sort of real world mm-hmm. uh, in order for that to pop. And I think like someone like Todd Salons, like one of his main problems I have with most of his films is that just every single person in it is the worst person you've ever seen to the point where it just doesn't matter because it, it doesn't even, they just all seem to be the same character. Yeah. That's, that's, Whereas, that's a huge issue I have. With what, like, the, like the difference between all of the characters and happiness and all of the characters in About Schmidt is huge, even though it's not a huge leap to say that all of the characters in About Schmidt are at least flawed and often irritating. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, it, I, he seems to, kinda, like, you know, mock people in a way that I don't think is condescending. You know, I think I think he's he's trying to find that gray area, too. But, I mean, it's it sort of reads like this kind of even-handed cynicism in a way where he's, he's trying to avoid taking a clear stand on like, you know, the issue of abortion or he's reserving judgment for people. 
and yet he paints them in a way that I think could come across as, um, you know, to some people. Again, it could be a completely subjective interpretation of, like, well, I think he's, you know, making fun of uh, Midwesterners, and, like, you know, even in something like Nebraska, the way those brothers act, you know? Uh, That's something that has come up with a few of his movies, where, like, the side characters just come across as, you know, just that Alexander Payne doesn't see them as fully dimensional people. Um, and I, and that's, and I mean, that is true to an extent. And I think that's another reason why a film like election or citizen Ruth maybe feels a little works better to his strengths because in that case, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, because they, it's not meant to represent the real world a hundred percent. I mean, another thing I want to say about, uh, a, a writer director who has that view is characters who are assholes. Those as an actor, those are the most fun roles to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and it shows cause everyone in citizen Ruth is amazing. Um, I yeah. mean, like Laura Dern, Laura Dern gives just one of a jaw dropping performance. Um, she's utterly like it. And it, I mean, watching something like citizen Ruth also just hammers home how few really good female character roles there are. Um, mostly, you know, actresses either have to play woman in peril or woman standing up against, uh, you know, uh, against oppression or like concerned wife, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's, or they it's, play second fiddle in a comedy like a Jennifer right. Aniston or something. Well, yeah. I mean, again, I consider that just wife. Yeah. <laughs> the girlfriend role. It, the Jennifer Anson role is just the girlfriend who doesn't get that was actually one of the other things I liked about Money Pit was that Shelley Long yeah. was as funny as Tom Hanks instead mm-hmm. of just being like, here's the comedian and his girlfriend. They were both really funny. Um where whereas like, you know, like you can't I can't think of another role for a female that's like Laura Dern's role. Like I can think of a you know, like some some male roles that are that abrasive and that hilarious and stuff like that. You know, like there's tons of role like Steve Buscemi has played or Philip Seymour Hoffman and character actors like that, but there are really not many roles like that for women. Um, but even beyond her, like uh, Clarence Bodecker is amazing in this. Um, all of the, uh, the pro-choice people are really funny. Um, I especially love the sort of uh, effeminate man who uh, just at the worst possible time goes uh, and just think about the message you'll be sending. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that's actually one of my favorite things about uh, Alexander Payne uh, movies are the roles that just appear for a little bit and just, def- and just are jaw dropping. My favorite character, favorite like tiny bit parts in any movie is the, uh, the head of the election committee, that one student in election yeah, he, you know what? He's gone on to uh, co-star in Masters of Sex, which is another great TV show. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I like I was it was bugging me as I'm watching him for like the first episode. Where have I seen that face? Oh yeah, it's the guy from Election. It's <laughs> so great because he and he's he. What's amazing is even a role that small, he proves himself to be a narcissist by like presenting it like, all right, let's do everything by the book because this is an official election and we got to make sure the results are official. We're not electing the fucking Pope here, Larry. (laughs) But then the second Matthew Broderick comes out with a count that's different than his, he's like, um, no, my count was right. Yours is like, he will not, he knows instantly (laughs) something is up. Um, and (laughs) you know, like, 
I love that about that character. And I think all the characters in Citizen Ruth and Election are just brilliant. And I think, um, especially in those early movies, uh, about Schmidt as well, uh, Alexander Payne really does a good job of knowing when to cast non-actors. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of non-actors in Election. There's a lot of non-actors um, in uh, about Schmidt. Uh, there's the one... Oh, man. There's the one... The uh, district attorney in Citizen Ruth... You don't even see ever see it really in a close-up, but he just has this huge birthmark on his face, and it's never addressed. The, just, the, the district attorney is sort of in a long shot, but he has this giant mark on the side of his face. Yeah, I think Tackleberry from Police Academy is yeah. the judge. That's true. He's good, yeah. too. Um, <laughs> I, thought, I thought for, Sir Patrick, for sure Patrick is going to say the principal in election, which to me is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, small performance oh, yeah. in his filmography. Yeah, I love that. That guy's perfect as a principal, and I think Alexander Payne even addresses that in the commentary for that movie. That is one, yeah. That is one of the best principal performances. I think it's almost spot on to my high school principal. <laughs> that speech because, it was out there. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's because he tries to uh, sort of project uh, an, an air of uh, like a command, but he's really ineffectual. Like he's really not like he gets steamrolled by by uh, Reese Witherspoon and and Broderick during the whole thing. He just sort of is there, Um, you know. And I mean, the other thing you have to say about Citizen Ruth is it's just it's correct about the way money and politics (laughs) like intermingle. Like I mean, this movie could have been made, you know, in two thousand eight. It could have been it would have been made, and it would have been you know, it could have been about Prop Eight or something. The way something like that gets passed just because, like, a lot of money gets – forces something down, you know, people's throats. Like, um, it's it's really – you know, it's a really good political satire, uh, whereas even – where election just feels more like uh, observational character uh, um, sort of satire as opposed to sort of grander scale. But, no, it's – yeah, Citizen Ruth, really fucking good and uh, sadly underseen. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, everybody needs to check it out because I mean, I, I think you know, like like you said, Frank, it might be kind of jarring if you've become a fan of his after you know, like about Schmidt, and then going back and seeing something like this, you might be taken aback. But I think in a good way. Yeah, I think we should also at least briefly mention uh, Burt Reynolds. Well, yeah, <laughs> uh, who is really awesome <laughs> and especially considering this is even before the the Burt renaissance of uh, Boogie Nights and mm-hmm. I don't think this movie gets a lot of credit for spur- for starting that it's all, it's usually always on Boogie Nights but he's pretty amazing in this as well god him with his little weird servant oh, boy yeah. that he yeah. saved from being aboard like that is the the places this movie goes is so like you just don't think it will go any dark. Like you just think, like there is there's a transgressive thrill just to hearing Laura Dern just scream at the top of her lungs, "I want a fucking abortion!" Like yeah. you don't even hear the word abortion used in like even in Knocked Up, the the raunchiest comedy ever. They won't say the word abortion, you know. Like, um, but then like it keeps ramping it up with with Burt Reynolds and the and just the weird things it implies about his character, and then at the end. Where uh, Laura Dern's mother makes that final plea, That's and Laura Dern my just favorite part, <laughs> yeah, just screams to a megaphone. Well, at least I wouldn't have to suck your boyfriend's cock. Like, holy shit! <laughs> I 
<laughs> that to me is by far the funniest line in the movie. I love it. Yeah. It is. It's. Oh my gosh. This movie is. Yeah. It's. It's jaw dropping, and it's so confident for a first film. No shit. To, to to just wade into those waters, um, just un- totally unafraid. Uh, I mean, before this, Alexander Payne, he did like he did some stuff for the Playboy Channel. Like he did some soft core. <laughs> uh, him and Jim Taylor actually they wrote wow. together uh, two episodes of a Playboy Channel show that it was like a Red Shoe Diaries type thing. Whoa. Um, uh, like that's the only really thing that only, I mean they I think they did some other short films. But like this is their yeah their first feature and it's so assured and so fearless. Um, it's the sort of thing like you know when you see someone like Martin Scorsese go to crazy lengths and crazy depths and stuff and something like Wolf of Wall Street. The reason he's able to go there is because he has this whole career under his belt where he just has the confidence now that yeah. he can do anything he wants to. Um, whereas like you know watching a first time filmmaker have such a refined. Uh, well, I guess it wasn't a refined aesthetic. I guess I take that back because he clearly refined his aesthetic into something completely different as his career went on. Um, but, but just yeah, to have that confidence and that that skill is just brilliant. Uh, yeah, Clarence Boddicker's uh, in a, in an interview, he said that Alexander Payne was one of the three film three directors that he li- most liked to work with, uh, that he most enjoyed working with because. And he said uh, the other. I know one of the other ones was Paul Verhoeven, and I can't <laughs> recall what the third was. Um, oh, it was Peter Weir. Oh, I cool. Can't, I can't remember the the Peter Weir movie Clarence Boddicker was in. Hmm. Um, yeah, I can't remember either. But that's yeah. But uh, but he said but he said like the thing that linked them all was there were three directors who knew exactly what they wanted, um, and they knew how to get it, and they expected you to contribute. Uh, which was, you know, which is, it's clear because everyone here, like Laura Dern, like her performance, you know, can only, her performance could only have happened in an environment in which a director allowed something like that to happen. And it's a precursor to her work on Enlightened, honestly. Like she goes, yes. she doesn't, she may not be like, <laughs> as like, uh, you know, she doesn't have the uh, mentality of an addict per se, but she goes through the same emotional roller coaster that she does in Citizen Ruth in terms of high, very high highs and very low lows, and trying to navigate this kind of weird sort of emotional landscape of and dealing with all these people that she can't handle. And I, I don't know. Enlightened is a show that really, really spoke to me, and I w- like. I just wish it would have lasted because I love Mike White as a writer too. You know, I like I like Mike White a lot, and I've certainly come to really love Laura Dern. Um, give it a give I, a watch. I, I really should give it another try. I watched the first episode. It gets better um, when it came out, and I, yeah, and it, I just found that first episode so boring. I never gave it another chance, but I should give it another try. Yeah. Well, yeah, I didn't know me- I didn't know Mike White wrote that. I'll have to check that out too. Mm-hmm. It's it's yeah. I guess it ends on it's not like a Deadwood situation, but I, I it ends on a satisfying note. But you definitely want more than just two seasons. But it's it's worth checking out for sure. So, um, yeah, I, I walked into about Schmidt, uh, already a huge fan of his based on his earlier two films, and uh, again was rather surprised. By, by we mentioned sort of the lack of satire this time around, um, but also what surprised me is 
kind of relating a little bit, almost well, obviously prematurely, to sort of Jack Nicholson's fear of irrelevance. And, like, I sort of get where, like, this movie was going from the opening scene, where he's just sitting there, knowing it's his last day at work, knowing it's retirement time, and almost just kind of being, you know, emotionally vacant from the whole experience and not knowing what's next. Um, and there are just moments in this movie that make me feel incredibly sad and wondering if this is really what retired men go through and, you know, to some degree if this is what my mom went through after, you know, my, my, my dad had passed. And it, and yet, like, I think Jack Nicholson gives one of his best performances because he's not relying on his sort of Jack Nicholson shtick in any way. He's playing his age and he's, you know, dating or he's married to uh, a woman that's closer to his age. And I, I mean, it, he just conveys this incredible sadness and uncertainty and, you know, often self-contained, but really, really believable. And uh, I mean, I, I think the only, it's not even an issue because I love Kathy Bates, but it does disrupt the tone just a bit <laughs> because it has this sort of you know, warm road trip movie feel going on and him sort of on a spiritual journey of sorts. And, uh, I mean, he's, he doesn't want to become irrelevant as a father. So obviously he's going to come out and be supportive maybe. Uh, but I, I just, when she shows up, it's, it's, it becomes kind of a different movie in a way. Um, but you know, she's hilarious and I, I like where, you know, like we've mentioned before, the way Payne examines his characters, and has no qualms with, you know, calling them out on their shit at times. And I think, you know, at first, like, the daughter is sort of, you know, painted as this beacon of light. And, you know, seeing her have a breakdown, it's like, Payne's not... Payne is kind of unafraid to do that to every character in, in a very humanistic way. I think this is, like, his first sign of really tapping into an emotional palette where it, it was just genuinely uh, moving for me and... Like, the scene where he's talking to his wife, looking up to the stars, just, it, it, it wrecks me. It really does. And I think it's a great film. Almost as, not quite as good as the first two movies, but still really, really, I, I, that's the one thing about all of his movies, really great to rewatch. Like, I could put it on at any time and just get something out of it. So, yeah. I love About Schmidt just as much, if not more. Well, no. I, I, I love it almost equally to his two films, first two films. Uh, Frank, how do you, how do you feel about about Schmidt? I think it's the most underrated Alexander Payne picture. I I love it as well. Uh, I just think its portrayal of old people is yeah. perfect. It's perfect, and it's captured perfectly in his letters to Indugu. That is how old people think. Uh, <laughs> where where their concerns are, worrying about everything really. The line where June Squibb tells him not to dilly dally how that would just after being married for 42 years would just make your skin crawl is, is perfect. And I would definitely go out to Dairy Queen after that. Yeah. And it it builds like, if I look at my parents' marriage and stuff like that, where they're at, just how they can get each on, on each other's nerves. And it's like, it's so real in its portrayal of a long marriage that it's one of my favorite things about the movie. And as Jim said, one of the best Jack Nicholson performances, and I surprised it doesn't get talked about more. Yeah, it's it's um it's it's one of those things where it's a little distracting at first, just because he's Jack Nicholson, and 
he hasn't really ever I don't think he's ever really played a character like this that's just such an abject loser. Um like he's such a schmuck in this movie. Yeah. Um, um so Jim, I'm interested in something that you said. Uh and I wonder if I walked away from this movie uh with maybe a different take on it uh than you. So we so tell me more about the scene where he's talking to his wife on top because I think the scene where he's talking to his wife on top of the RV is actually a really is I think it's almost kind of the the Rosetta Stone <laughs> for the movie and especially the way I read the ending. But you said you find it very moving. Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I sense him as a person that's you know sort of emotionally cut off, and I mean it's crazy to think you know at times how he. You know, at one point during a montage, he says, "Who is this person? You know, I'm living with or, or sleeping next to." And then, of course, when she's gone, he goes through this insane mourning period, like putting on her makeup and uh, like that stuff. Really, you know, affects me. And I, I don't know. I, I mean, him sitting on top of the RV is, you know, and seeing the shooting star and stuff. Like in another movie, I would think that's schmaltzy as fuck. But I think, like, in the context of his character, at, at that moment in time, you know, I, I, th- I think it works. And I think it's really, like... I mean, that's just it, too. It's like, is this another character, you think, where he doesn't fully grow, like how you mentioned? You know, where... where I mean, well, obviously, that scene at the wedding where he's going to give the speech, he's containing all his emotions. And he's not really saying what's on his mind. Uh... But then he, you know, at the very end, he reads this letter and breaks down in tears. And I'm wondering what that says about him as a person. I literally j- just hit on another woman saying his wife never understood him the way she does. And yeah. it just feels like a, a level of guilt and just weirdness for the character. Again, showing just they really don't even know who they are. I, so, it's, so again, you're describing these scenes um, and you're describing them sort of – you're describing your, your take on them almost as the opposite as my take on them, which is his moment of growth is the moment where he doesn't say what's on his mind. For me, his moment of growth is when he does the right thing. And instead of making it all about him, he says, it's been very nice to meet you. And he says it in his, in that hilarious biting his lip kind of way, where like Mm -hmm. that object you show me, it was very artistic. Like that, that speech is brilliant. (laughs) And to me, that is the growth. The growth is instead of making everything about him, he just realizes what he needs to be is be there for his daughter. But but then it's revealed through the narration. And by the way, I want to say the narrative the narrate the device of voiceover in this is I I thought like the way and I hadn't seen this I had not seen this film since um, it was in theaters. So the way I remembered it was I, I was afraid it was going to be obnoxious um, and sort of just a lot of showing and not uh, sort of a lot of telling yeah. and not showing. But I think it's, but I think it's actually kind of brilliant because um, number one, it gives us access to his interior interior monologue. But number two, what he actually says is not the point. It's how he says it and how he views the world and how he contextualizes everything. And I think the voiceover is brilliant. But I think so. Right after. That moment, instead of it being a moment of growth where he just realizes, oh, I should not be an asshole. I should be there for my daughter. He views it as a defeat. Um, mm. And to me, so the to me, his moment on top of the RV 
reads as very insincere um, and and sort of more about self-loathing than anything because it's, again, like, like Frank said, it's immediately after he gets, it's immediately after he does that horrible yeah. attempt of seducing that woman and he's feeling sorry for himself and, you know, in, you know, and he tries to make it have this, himself have this big moment of realization. But the second that the universe drops something in his lap that he could interpret, even though there's no, like, I don't want, I don't think that there's any Alexander Payne, Payne movie that you, I could ever watch that I would say that believes that that shooting star is an actual message. I think that is. I, that's so not Alexander Payne's sensibility to have a shooting star be like some kind of suggest some kind of other world, <laughs> some kind of metaphysical message from beyond from his wife. But he just finds something to interpret as, oh, you accept my forgiveness and everything is good and I have closure now. Um, yeah. Even though he clearly has not actually addressed any of his actual feelings. It's still um, a selfish act. Because at the very, the very next scene, he just... He just wakes up and he just drives off, and the, all those porcelain figures that he had kept because they remind him of his wife so much—they just fall off the top of the roof. He's completely <laughs> forgotten about it. It's in—it's—it's it's already left his mind because he's already just thinking about himself again. He's—and to me, that is how in—that's how the final letter from Indugu reads. Because the other thing, the other big thing I was wondering uh, when I was going to rewatch it was. I, I remember that scene very vividly, but I don't remember how the letter was worded, and I didn't remember what the painting was of. And to me, that was going to say everything. So when it was gutting up to that scene, I still had not yet decided how I would interpret you know, this character and how Alexander Payne feels about the character. And in my head, it, I was like, okay, if this, is a, if this letter is specific and it, it's clear that he actually has touched Indugu uh, in, in, in some way other than supporting a, a charity that also mm-hmm. supports, you know, Indugu in an in a indirect way. Like, the movie mocks the idea by having Jack Nicholson stay, say stuff like, oh, I'm Jack, like the best line in the movie, I'm jabbering on, you probably want to check the, cash this check and go buy some food. <laughs> <laughs> like, the movie makes fun of his narcissism and the way that he can, uh, that he can be so narcissistic that he can talk about his legitimately first world problems. Yeah to someone in a third world and have no self-awareness about it. So to me, I was like, and when you read that final letter from Indugu, it's totally a form letter. Like there's no possible way that the saying, oh, he's, we've read all of your, his, your letters to him and he's enjoyed them very much. Like there's no possible way they read all of his letters. In fact, it it clearly says we have received all your letters. It never says we actually, and I would would also say, on the topic of first world problem, in his first letter, when he addresses his brother-in-law who lost a leg to diabetes last year and stuff like that, any anything in those letters is hilarious. And we've debated whether his, if some or all of Alexander Payne's characters are narcissistic, I would say uh, Warren R. Schmidt is one of the most narcissistic characters in his filmography. Absolutely. So to me, that final letter is a stock letter and the most generic, vague painting you could possibly receive. And that's ju- that to me is the equivalent of the shooting star on top of the van where it's just something that he has seen to justify to himself. Oh, no, I'm like he's at a moment where maybe he could make a change. 
but then he's justified. Oh no, no! I the person I've been this whole time has been a very good person. I've I've done a lot because look at what I've done, and it's it, and it's almost the most sad and pathetic moment in any Alexander Payne movie, hmm. where I, to me it's him justifying his narcissism and everything by saying, "No, look at all the good I did. I ha- I I donated to this charity, which like the way those charities even operate is just trying to prey on the guilt uh, and." And wanting to make people feel better about themselves and knowing that you can do that <laughs> by saying, you know, like you could help a child and stuff like that. Wow, yeah, this, is, th- this is the podcast where I, I discover that I look at everything through rose-colored glasses. Yeah, I think you, I think you might. Oh, no. Yeah, and I, I was very uh, kind of on the same page as Patrick looking at the, pa- the picture this time. And obviously, in my memory of it, I kind of remembered the picture – being an interpretation of Schmidt with the kid. And hmm. it's clear looking at it this time, I would say the older person is wearing a dress, if anything. That, But <laughs> I think I think Warren interprets it as being him as well in the painting. So I think that painting is really perfect to get that message across. And I, I find it a little more emotional uh, from a character perspective, considering... Right before that, he literally is questioning his existence. Yeah, and and this is some kind of bright spot, not necessarily a complete justification for his narcissism, but at least something positive. After he literally is probably at one of his lowest points in the movie, not the lowest. That's probably the cold cream scene, but <laughs> he he, uh, he is at a low point, and it's just a, a at least a glimmer of positivity. That's how I interpreted it. Yeah, but but it is but I but in the context of the whole film, I think what that's saying is that he is so sad and empty that this sad and empty gesture means the world to him. When like he should act, what he should actually be doing is trying to reach out to his daughter in honest ways or whatever. Or you know, like you know, yeah. like if, especially if you if you contrast the ending of this movie. And I, it, it feels I feel like Will Forte and Bruce Dern have a similar relationship as uh, as Jack Nicholson's daughter and him in this film. And the way that ends to me is that's that is the happy ending version of that story, which is acknowledging the irrevocable irre- di- differences, but learning to work through them. And then this is the bitterly cynical. And I'm not saying it's not unemotional. Um, Jack Nicholson. Jet, like there are some actors who are so cool and they're so intense that when you try to watch them cry, it can be weird sometimes. Like there's there are some movies where Robert De Niro cries, and it is. I think he's. I think Robert De Niro is obviously a great actor, and I think he's maybe the worst cry- crying yeah. <laughs> that I've ever seen. Yeah, he has a very heavy sob. Yeah, whereas Jack Nicholson's like. Jack Nicholson's outburst at the end of this film is really genuine. Like it feels so heartfelt, but I think that only makes it even more bitter and cynical. And I think it's subversive in that way. And Ooh. I'm not saying it's it's unemotional because I think I think if you do get invested in the character, he's not yeah. he's not as he's not Ruth Stoops. You know, he isn't Matthew Broderick in Election. He is a little more understandable and relatable. Um, and I think all the characters, that's the other strength about, about Schmidt is all of the characters feel really, uh, understandable and relatable because of really well-observed details. Like even one of my favorite characters who I don't, I don't know if he has, I think maybe he has one line in it, but it's, uh, 
I mean, and we'll talk about Dermot Mulrooney later because holy shit, Dermot Mulrooney is perfect in this. Yeah. Um, but Dermot Mulrooney's brother, who's just at dinner with the Godzilla t-shirt on and then later sitting next to Jack Nicholson at the wedding, like, <laughs> he, he is the perfect, just burnout, does not give a shit um, mm-hmm. <laughs> character. He is, so, he is someone I've seen countless times where you go to someone else's family reunion or whatever, and there's just, like, one person who is not engaging it at all. And you're like, who is that person? You're like, oh, that's my cousin. I don't know. Like, and he's hysterical, and it's there's something weirdly specific about his disengagement. And I think it might even just be something as little as that Godzilla t-shirt frames it in a certain way. Um, and uh, he, and But even him, who literally does nothing but decide not to engage with anyone in any way uh, other than I think he he sort of eggs uh, Dermot Mulrooney on when he's talking about his uh, pyramid scheme that he fell into Um, but like even him like when I was at that dinner during certain parts of it and it's so awkward and boring like I feel I totally feel like I had the I have potential to be him at some points where I'm just like you know what I'm just gonna disengage oh yeah that's exactly it maybe that's why it gets it affects me the way it does. Like, I think his narcissism is definitely there and kind of consistent, but I think it stems from his fear of becoming irrelevant. Like, as a husband, as a father, maybe even as a contributor to society, because, you know, after he retires, what's one of the first thing he does? He goes back to the office and says, how can I help you guys, you know? And I think that's a that's that's kind of a universal fear of anybody, like, you know, in terms of when you reach a certain age, are you just sort of discarded, <laughs> you know, and what do you do about that? <clears throat> and I, I understand, like, he is an incredibly selfish character to where, like, he's trying to treat his daughter like his wife, you know, like, oh, make this sandwich my way, and oh, do you have to go home? And that's that's the kind of stuff that, like, eh, you know, not to get or, personal, but <laughs> it hits home. Or who's going to take care of me? Yeah, exactly. I, in terms of the narcissism, I think the one thing we haven't touched on that really uh, shows that is the way every time something happens, like his daughter refusing him to come early and stuff like that, in his letters to Ndugu, he always phrases it as the opposite. He, She really wanted him to come, but he wanted yeah. to see some sights and do some other stuff. So there, that's kind of his denial and his narcissism on display. And one other thing I wanted to mention as Patrick was talking about, uh, maybe he should be reaching out to his daughter rather than writing these letters. The one thing I think the movie does address that a bit in the sense that there's several times where they, they, they draw parallels between the father daughter relationship and the, the father foster parent relationship where he says, numerous times oh you're still getting the checks oh you get the checks though right it it's very similar to that relationship that they're distant and she just wants his money for things and i i see some interesting parallels between those two in the movie as well i so so they're hit so you don't really get to know the daughter very well and she does kind of come off at the beginning as kind of selfish in that her her father you know her mother just died and her father's clearly not dealing with it well, and she's sort of self-centered, and it's sort of and or she's sort of not like super concerned about helping him in that way. But then when finally they get a moment, and he's like, "No, I really want to talk to you," and all he says is, "Don't marry him." Like that to me, that's just like, oh, they just they just have that relationship where yeah. like she, yeah. just, she yeah. like it just implies a history of him being 
that self-centered. And at this point, she's an adult and she has found the best way to deal with it is to not have him be an intimate part of her life. She can still be close to her mother. Uh, and that's how she deals with it until her mother dies. And so I kind of feel like she's uh, that sort of a it's it's sort of a twist in the way you see her um, towards the end there, because it's sort of set up as if she's like selfish and only wants his money. But I do think uh, sometimes if you have sort of a toxic parent in that way, the your best course of action is to just sort of limit your your connection to them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good point. <laughs> Yeah, wow. Um, you know, I think we can move on. No, we can't, because oh. we mentioned Dermot Mulroney. Oh, that's right. He rules. Dermot, Dermot Mulroney. <laughs> I don't, like, I always just thought of him as one of those generic actors who occasionally appears in things, but I've, I've never, because I'd, I'd completely forgotten about his character in this movie, and i completely <laughs> forgotten about him in this movie, and he is amazing. He walks the line between irritating and and like genuine and sincere and like it's 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 brilliant how everything he says in this movie is so sweet and so annoying at the same time hmm. um yes. i it's 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 i kind of marvel at his performance cuz it's such a character that could have just been like it could have just been the super broad portrait of like person you least want to see your daughter with but what it actually is is person you least want to interact with but you can actually tell he's kind of a good person and that your daughter's probably all right with that's that's one of the strengths of pain you know i mean he yeah he doesn't he i mean a lot of people would say that in some instances he does do that to his side characters but i i think he gives them depth and dimension to where you like you feel one way towards him and then another way later like you don't like him one minute and then you like him the next, and that's sometimes relationships in a nutshell. So I mean, like I think it's interesting the way he examines that. Um, I kind of, I kind of think that mostly only applies to Vouch Schmidt, though. I think honestly, and I, I hate to do this all the time because it's 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 such a it's such a lazy form of criticism to use one filmmaker to sort of uh, bludgeon another. But I do think if you're going to be talking about what makes Alexander Payne's sort of cynicism and negativity different than other cynicism and negativity, like Alexander Payne, particularly in this film, you can look at him and say, he's concerned about why these people are narcissists. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think it's less so, and I think it's less important because it's not as character driven in election or not, not that it's not as character driven, but it's not as realistic in election and citizen Ruth. Um, But I would say that's not the case of something like, I think sideways he doesn't do as good of a job of it. And I would say that in most of the films, the side characters are kind of one-dimensional. I think about Schmidt just is kind of the exception. Like if you think about, I mean, certainly that's my main problem with the descendants uh, is every character who isn't George Clooney or his daughter just feels like they only exist to provide external uh, sort of tension and struggle um, or to be punched in the face in the case of, uh, the daughter's boyfriend, who's the absolute worst yes. character I've ever seen in any Alexander Payne movie. Mm-hmm. But like, I mean, in sideways, the side characters aren't exactly really fleshed out. Mm. Like, Maya is is honestly yeah. one of the most disappointing things about that rewatching it was Maya is really not that interesting character. Well, I was just going to say, let's move on to sideways, and we're kind of going sure. in order. And uh, I can see that, and I 
I, I know that you, you mentioned, Frank, that this is one of the few upon a rewatch that you don't feel as strongly about. Um, yeah, I, st- I still really like it at all. Uh, I still really like it. I just find Paul Giamatti's character to be a little more uh, like obvious humor beats and maybe a little more annoying than I did on a first-time watch. Really? It's, not a, it's not a huge complaint, like just slightly. Uh, I'm so happy you said that, Frank. Because I, I used to – so, you know, Sideways is – and I think everyone has these different – there's certain the films that uh, when you're first getting into film in high school or whatever, they're the, they're the sort of gateway independent films. And for me, Sideways was one of them. Um, and like so I used to always love Sideways. And rewatching it, I really didn't think Paul Giamatti's character – yeah, it felt a little broader and a little more obvious than I had remembered it. Yeah, and especially some of his humor beats. But the main thing that I didn't like as much on a rewatch, I am not a fan of the look of this movie with its uh, extremely like blurry look with high exposure. I, I don't know. It's just – it's not for me. Yeah, he's, he's mm. trying to do something a little different with yeah. the change of scenery and the – it does have a different aesthetic. I think one of my favorite all-time – or not all time, but you know, one of my favorite shots in this movie and probably one of my favorite shots in any Alexander Payne movie is uh, when Miles uh, and uh, Thomas Hayden Church's character, whose name I can't remember, when they're walking to the restaurant and they're just walking on the side of the highway and they're walking past that car dealership. And there is that sort of overexposure where the lights are really big. And, um, but it, it feels like that. Like there are, it feel it again, it's, it's a side of, um, it's a kind of a side of an environment you don't see in films very much is sometimes to get to places you kind of have to just like walk on gravel a little bit, you know, and like you're just sort of walking down the side of the road if you're on a, in a hotel or something like that. I really love that moment, but yeah, I've I, done that. <laughs> I, like, yeah. I like the just location scouting and everything about his movies. Yeah. Just real places that are kind of trapped 20 years before when the movies made oh, definitely. That we all end up in every day and not avoiding those for the sake of it being too ugly or dated or anything like that. It gets, it gets the exact opposite effect. He has good choice yeah. in restaurant locations. Oh my sure. God, his restaurants. He has this, this is weird specific, like forever. Whenever I'm in a restaurant like this, I'm just going to think of it as an Alexander Payne restaurant, but it's that weird, like upper, like mid, mid tier kind of restaurant. That's like only slightly fancy, but it's like, it's the fancy place that still has TVs and, <laughs> you know, like it's that it, there's a very specific kind of Midwestern uh, suburban nice restaurant that he captures perfectly in all of his movies. Yeah, I want to stay at that windmill hotel so bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird, though. I, I For some reason, uh, and maybe it's just because of where I am right now, but like because I've gotten to know a lot of foodies, thanks to my roommate, and a lot of wine people and a lot of cheese people... Like this movie felt like I was hanging out with very familiar surroundings, um, and I, I, I do agree. Like I, I think one of my initial issues, I probably even said this on an earlier episode, was like I, I wasn't sure if I completely bought into like uh, Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church being this close of friends, and like just like I mean, obviously a lot of friendships can have that odd couple dynamic going on. But I was like, the whole time when I first saw it, I was thinking, man, Paul Giamatti's got a lot of patience to put up with his shit. You know, I think it goes the opposite way too. Like, yeah. they are different, and that's true. Yeah, I think uh, we really need to find out Thomas Hayden Church's characters. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but his his character 
they're so different, and that's what the movie's kind of about to me too. The way they address wine drinking is obviously an analogy for their personalities. Yeah, yeah. And I really, I really like those aspects, and I think the movie does address the weird nature of their friendship quite bluntly at a couple points, and it does feel like a, a it feels like relationships I've had with friends, and it, I think it, it feels real. Although the characters can be a, a bit caricature yeah uh, the, the relationship feels genuine and real i would agree i, I, I feel like pe- the way people write emails to this podcast and describe me and you jim i kind of feel like they think i'm paul giamatti and you're thomas hayden church <laughs> what <laughs> like i kind of feel like they're like oh yeah patrick is so cold and, a- and so analytical and and jim he's just sort of like a nice guy who's really warm and likes movies <laughs> 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 No, but like I, it, it, it's kind of scary, you know. Another man, I guess. I wonder if a lot of Alexander Payne movies could like almost like cautionary tales for the future. But like yeah. I, I, I do relate to to Paul Giamatti at times in this movie, especially like him deciding to leave the wedding and go to a fast food restaurant. I've done that. <laughs> like, cause I mean, I don't want to do. De- like, there were times where I was like, I don't want to deal with you know, like, uh, these people or, you know, because of social anxiety or whatever, I've literally like just said, okay, I'm just going to go somewhere by myself and do my own thing. And that to me is one of the saddest moments in the movie. Like he's drinking this incredible bottle of wine while having a hamburger, you know, oh, also, See, to me, it's one of the most cathartic and happiest moments of the movie. <laughs> I love this. This is one of my favorite episodes right now because I'm getting like the complete opposite reaction every time. It's just like, that is, he's look, He's decided to stop holding on to the past. It clearly represents that. And hmm. like make today a day to celebrate, as cheesy as it sounds, that's what that scene means to me. Yeah, uh, no, that's I, – I, I, got, I got sort of the same – I mean I think it's sort of bitter. But I do agree that – I mean that's the line earlier in the film is, you know, the day you open that, that's the day we're celebrating. Yeah, well, yeah. I think – sorry, it's, I would say in my youth I was a lot more like Paul Giamatti and could relate to him like Jim – but I find the older I'm getting, I think I'm a bit older than you guys, I'm becoming more like Thomas Hayden Church and caring less and being less neurotic, if, if anything. So I, that was interesting for me to look at as a personal transition. And maybe I find myself a little more in the middle of those characters now. And I feel like that movie's almost better if you side with one of them specifically and can attach onto their journey and relate emotionally, where if you're in the middle, it... I don't know. It's it, it it exposes extremism in both characters. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there is a, a bare sort of level of uh, relatability to just anyone who's an enthusiast about anything, whether it's wine or about films or whatever. You're going to have moments where you're with people who are like, "Oh, you like films? Have you seen Little Miss Sunshine? That was really good." Was like, this one of the movies that Sergio mentioned, like as a movie that film critics love? Because it can it relate have, to Paul Giamatti. I think it might have been, but yeah. I mean, I, I think anyone who's an enthusiast can relate to that sort of feeling of just being like, just being like, I want you to enjoy this with me, but you're not enjoying this on the level. You know, basically, anytime I've ever shown a movie to my dad, <laughs> except Tree of Life. Oh, no, he liked Tree of he tried Tree of Life because it was vaguely religious, but he didn't like appreciate it. Oh. You know, like the way that I appreciated it, or you know, but like. You know, like that's, there's that level of relatability. But Jim, I don't think you have to worry. You're way more self-aware uh, than pretty much any Alexander Payne uh, okay, protagonist. Well, 
I did spend Valentine's Day falling asleep in my bed with a Hustler, so Hustler magazine. That's, that's fine. I think we've all spent. I think we've all we've all had days like that. Valentine's days like that. So um, I didn't get a chance to rewatch The Descendants, um, and I know Patrick, this was your first time watching it. Yeah, and I think Frank loves it. I do. Hmm. I, I I was reading Patrick's take on Letterboxd. Oh yeah, uh, that's right. <laughs> with the uh, the little dialogue exposition there. Uh, I don't know. I I don't find it that rosy, and I actually like Hawaii's location and portraying it as a real place. Uh, and I think it works very well. I think as the scenes I mentioned earlier, where it's these people dumping on a, 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 a comatose body as being the saddest, most emotional scenes in the movie. And those work on a, such a high level for me. Uh, I don't know. I just, I really like the relationship. I like the Sid character. I think he has <laughs> like a good personal moments where, you know, he's where George Clooney actually learns to appreciate some aspects of his life. I think that the Robert Forrester character is really interesting. Uh, I don't know. I, I I like a lot of the side characters, and I, th- I I actually like the look of the movie a lot too. I I like Hawaii as a location. It's it's. I'll go ahead and say that there's just there, it's. I'm not saying it's without darkness, but it is so for me. It's so playing to the cheap seats uh, with just the way it opens, like just the first twenty minutes where it's not a film that has a voiceover or has a, uh, a premise for voiceover. It's just the first five minutes are massive, just like voiceover, exposition, exposition. Yeah. Anyway, I'm I remember this that guy. for sure. I live in Hawaii. This is my wife. I don't know what my kids are up to. This is my family. We got to decide what to do about the land deal. Anyway, here's other stuff about the land deal. Anyway, here's who I'm descended by. Okay, now you're all caught up. Okay, here's the actual story. And then like later, like, oh, my family's like an archipelago. We're all part of the same thing, but slowly drifting up. Like it is so on the nose. It just felt it just felt like the kind of movie that is made explicitly to win awards, as opposed to most of his other films. And I and I even I really wanted to like it because Jim Jim Rash uh, is one of the screenwriters. That's and right. I, I'm and he won an Academy Award for it. And I love Community, so I I would I just I love the premise that Dean Pelton uh, was was like a really great screenwriter. But I really. No, the Descendants to me is just the way it's set up and everything. Um, there's interesting ideas to the story that, but the way it's set up just feels like it was made specifically for my mom, <laughs> which is not how I feel about any of his other films. Uh, even though Nebraska has a has a simpli- simplicity and a sweetness to it that made you know, I actually Nebraska when I saw that movie. Uh, I recommended my mom see it, but I, I, and I, and she did and, you know, and they liked it, her, her and my father liked it, but that movie to me is a more honest, uh, whereas the descendants just feels like, well, let's throw a coma. Let's, let's throw a death in the family trope in there. Okay. Let's throw dad's unable to connect to his kids trope in there. Okay. Let's throw sad person looking sad while in the most beautiful place in the world trope. Like it just, it felt calculated. Um, and I guess I mean if it doesn't feel that way for you, I'm not. It's not without its moments. Matthew Lillard is good in it. I think yeah, the moment no kidding. He, I think the moment where he confronts Brian Spears is a good scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, everything that it attempts to do uh, just t- 
totally ruins any good any things I would have liked about it. I definitely like the father daughter relationship in it, and I think they're both very good. Uh, and and I, her father again that felt a little like boilerplate. Like yeah, I'm a teenage a, I'm a teenage girl, and I do dumb things all the time, but I'm secretly super smart, and I'm going to tell you a little something about yourself, and we're going to talk like we're not father and daughter. Like that that felt kind of again just screenwritery. I don't think it's a bad movie, but it's in terms of especially when they watch all of Alexander Payne movies, it does feel like minor pain to me. Not major you, pain. Yeah, uh, but I will go ahead and remind you, Jim, uh, what you said, because Descendants, like I said, the first 20 minutes are my least favorite part, and I was thinking about just turning it off. Um, so, I, so, like Frank, I trust Letterboxd, and I, Here went, we go. I went to Letterboxd, and every single person that I follow on Letterboxd gave it at least four stars. Um, and including you, Jim, and I, I forgot to change it from my rewatch. That was when my, did you change it, Jim? Because it's a three right now. I'm looking at it right it, now. It was. It used to be a four, and then it went down to a three when I watched it with my mom. It used. It, it's. I'm looking at it right now, and it's four and a half. So there must what be some kind fuck? of letterbox thing. But here's what you said. <laughs> Upon a rewatch, I feel like this is one of the most emotionally satisfying movies of the last year, without question. Yeah, I'm seeing that too. So if you actually click on it, it says four and a half. But in my feed of friends who watched it, it's coming up as a three. Letterboxd yeah. has never disappointed me more. Oh, what my God. a disaster. <laughs> this is. <laughs> it was for worth you. doing this podcast just for this revelation. Certainly. Certainly. Oh, my God. We're finally, we finally cracked the code on Letterboxd. We, this is. This is big. This is like the parallax view. I covered a, a conspiracy here um, to give the Descendants more stars than it deserves. But no, uh, so I don't know. You like the Descendants again? That's that's fine. But I, I, it's certainly the least of my films. And it being the first film that he made with without Jim Taylor, I wonder if Jim Taylor was maybe the chief sort of proponent of s- sort of scripts that are you know, darker and more cynical and more vicious. Um, I mean, we can get ready to wrap things up here, but really quickly, has have any of you seen per, per, uh, Paris Jade? Oh my God. How do you say Paris, it? Je, Paris Jetet. Paris yeah. Jetet. Yes. Paris. I, have not, I have not seen it. <laughs> his, his segment, the, the, it's the final six minutes. I'm sure it's on YouTube. I'll even post it up on the blog, but uh, I love it. I really do. I it's it's almost Alexander Payne in six minutes, just in a nutshell, kind of. It's you know got a sense of humor to it. It's just basically a you know a, a, a middle aged woman uh, who you know she's just like a you know a postal carrier going to visit Paris and doing it alone and learning to accept the fact that she's doing it alone. Um, but it, it has one of the best voiceovers in any Alexander Payne movie, and I just. I think it's really moving, but not hitting you over the head with, you know, its sentimentality at the very end. It's just, it's a very simple six-minute story that I think is worth seeing, you know, I'm sure, just even watch that one segment. Because there's, there's a few good segments in that movie, but overall, uh, it, like, the, I think Alexander Payne's contribution to that is one of the best things he's done. Do you guys, do you guys think that it's possible for Alexander Payne to go back and make a movie as dark as something like about Schmidt or election again. Hmm. 
I don't think it's possible for an American of that stature to make a movie as dark as Citizen Ruth again. But, but like, do you think Alexander Payne descendants in Nebraska is sort of that's how he's going to be from here on out? I don't know. I think he, I, just based on interviews and commentaries, I don't think he's that. Cal- he's kind of calculated, but not that calculated. It's more, oh, I did a movie about schools. I did a road trip movie. He clearly tends to attach himself to previously published work, novels, or just stories, as you mentioned. And I think it's more about him just, for whatever reason, finding stories that are like that. And I, I could see him becoming attached to a darker story. It's just, he almost just kind of floats through this stuff. He seems really uh, casual uh, in his approach to what he picks. And I don't know, he... He seems like a really laid-back guy, a very articulate guy, and I think he is aware of the darkness of those movies. I think he's aware tonally where his filmography is, and I I think it just depends on the material he, he attaches himself to. Yeah, I mean, it, it also, also depends on if he, you know, finds interesting source material to work with, for sure, and uh, I, I mean, I... I I think with election to he, he did find that kind of tone at the time that was sort of like replicated in something like thank you for smoking. Um, oh, I'm I'm so glad you brought that up. That was going to be my next thing in that like if you look at two directors that attach themselves to like adapted work so to speak. The other one I would look at is Jason Reitman. Mm-hmm. And to me what Alexander Payne brings to adapted material is so much more than Jason Reitman. I sometimes I, I question uh, Reitman's decisions in his movies. And I, at times think he can detract from the source material where based on things I've heard about uh, choices, he made an election and in the original story, he just seems to bring out the, the most, I don't know, unexplored or interesting parts of those stories where I think maybe Jason Reitman tries to get more sentimental and uh, like too by the book with his interpretations of that stuff. And I always think Alexander Payne brings something to the table that another director wouldn't on the adapted material. I, I think that's an actually a really interesting point. I yeah. never thought about contrasting Jason Reitman, but Jason Reitman does feel like the less inspired. He sort of tries to be playing in Alexander Payne's um, you know, in his, in his sort of ballpark, but is, is definitely, I would say, less inspired. Yeah, and, um, that, and that's not to say I don't uh, that I dislike all of Jason Reitman's movies. I like Juno. I like Up in the Air. I just see a difference between those two filmmakers that primarily live in the world of adaptive material. And if you want, if you want to think about, if you want an example of how uh, Alexander Payne, Payne lends himself to an adaption. Uh, adaptation, uh, both Election and Little and the and the 2004 movie Little Children, uh, or no, oh. that, that, no, the 2006 movie is uh, Little same Children, author, right? Same author, Tom Perota. And if you think about it, they're kind of similar stories and structures and stuff, but they're kind of omnipotent, omnipotent view and everything. But Todd Field's Little Children and Alexander Payne's Election could not be more wildly different. Yeah, I remember my my issue with Little Children was being the audio book like narration in that. That it's been a long time since I watched it, but Me that too. was one of my favorite. That was one of my favorite parts of it mm. was that audio book narration. 
Yeah. Sorry. Was... Sorry, Jim. I didn't mean to interrupt. You were talking about uh, thank you for smoking, and we never really got to say what you were thinking. Oh no! Here, which is... <laughs> I th- no really. That's just um, the thing of. I, it's interesting that that's how Jason Reitman started out with a more satirical edge, but I, I still think it's kind of watered down in that movie. Like, uh, I I like Thank You for Smoking, but not nearly to the point of something like Citizen Ruth. I just think like the, the I understand what he's going for. I just don't think it's as effective in Thank You for Smoking. I, I like his intentions more than the execution in that movie. But at the same time, it, it, it was just interesting to sort of, like you said, mirror those two filmmakers and kind of how they view source material or how they approach it. Um, and now that I think about it, I wonder if my up-in-the-air letterboxed rating is accurate. Because <laughs> I gave it four stars the first time, and I watched it again and didn't like it as much. Now I'm nervous. Letterboxd, you've gotten, you turned me into, I, I'm going to need Xanax now. I'm paranoid. <laughs> It's clearly the most important thing about being a cinephile. Yeah, exactly. Is, is the ratings. It's very Are they accurate? Put, it's very important to put numerical value to how you feel about your subjective experience of watching art. <laughs> that cannot be overstressed. I know. Speaking of uh, you know, that, that process, what's our top three Alexander Payne movies? I always go first. I, I didn't say anything, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> you said that like you were responding, you responding to me, saying, Jim, you go first. Are you okay, Jim? I think so. Okay. You, I, did, I did have a couple of beers for once, though, so maybe, you know, your loss, of, your, loss of, your loss of faith in Letterboxd has, has led you questioning your reality as you know it. Yeah. It, it's, it's, I'm really worried that I'm living in the Matrix now. Surely. Okay. okay. I'll go first then, Jim. Good. Okay, so surprisingly, uh, uh, to me at least, uh, uh, my first two are not uh, – elections, not my second place. It, my, fir- my, my ranking is number one. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, ranking is number one, Citizen Ruth. What? Uh, number two, uh, About Schmidt. And number three, uh, Election. Ooh. Interesting twist. Although, I must say, that is my top three as well. Oh, there you go. Exact same. Well, mine is Election, number one, About Schmidt, number two, Descendants, number three. Ooh. Interesting. And if I kept going, it would be Nebraska, Sideways, Citizen Ruth. Wow. Uh, (laughs) But but let's, let's put it this way for... Citizen Ruth and Sideways are both four and a half out of five on Letterboxd. Well, that, yeah, there you go. And that's, since that's I've been lot. in complete praise of everything the man does, I will point out one thing, a negative aspect, Uh-oh. Pro- probably to all his films, in, is that I think they could all be a bit shorter. Okay. I, I find, like, about Schmidt's over two hours, I think, I think Election and Citizen Ruth feel about the right length, but the rest of them feel a bit bloated. A little bit. I, I, I thought for that, sure you were yeah. going to bring up I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Oh, no. Okay, yeah, because where, he, where does, where does Jurassic Park the 3 rank? Oh, I walked out of that the first time I watched it. I've actually come to appreciate it a bit more, but that was one of the most depressing first-time watches because I did know that Alexander Payne had worked on the script, 
and it started with that rear projection windsurfing scene with the uh, Dave Novotny from Election, and it just rocked my world. But I've, I've learned to get over it and accept Jurassic Park 3 for the movie that it is. Yeah, it was interesting the way that him and Jim Taylor described that process in, in that interview, where it was basically like, well, we already built the sets for these <laughs> sequences, so uh, try to write a movie around it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're uh, ready to wrap it up. And Frank, couldn't be happier that you were on the show with us. It was a, this was a blast. Thanks. You know what? I don't think we ever actually properly introduced Frank. We were so busy talking I, about. I mentioned. I mentioned that he's done the film junk podcast. Oh, okay, maybe yeah. I just forget. Yeah, and uh, on uh, no problem, guys. I had a blast uh always fun to talk about one of my favorite filmmakers uh continue with the great work guys and uh if where where can we find you and stuff uh obviously filmjunk.com for the podcasts uh the film junk premiums at filmjunk.bandcamp.com and i'm on twitter uh at dirty frank with three r's in dirty awesome man well as you know i'm i always look forward every week to film junk and you're doing a great job there Really appreciate your contributions every episode. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Sweet. Well, we'll try and have you back on hopefully next year, maybe even for another comedy filmmaker. Who will see? Mm, interesting. Yeah, we'll, we'll think about that. Have for you sure. guys done Tim Burton yet? We did. Yeah? Yeah, I know. You're <laughs> we can always do part two. <laughs> I want to defend Dark Shadows. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. That's not... Yeah, well, let me know anytime in the future. It's uh, It's been a blast, guys. Thanks, man. We'll be in touch. See ya. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, man. So, Patrick... Oh, man. Who's our next director? Our next director is Roman Polanski, Jim. Oh, wow. Completely different. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. We're going to talk about Repulsion and Chinatown, but I'm sure a couple other titles will come up. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, We're going to have we're Andrew James about. from the Row 3 Cinecast on, and that'll be great. Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about Repulsion. I've never seen it. Oh, you're in for a treat. I bought the Blu-ray. Or you'll hate it. One of the two. It could go either way, yeah. 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 Or you'll think it was just okay. One of the three. So, mm-hmm. Patrick, where can we find you at these days? Hmm? Uh, oh, well, you can find me on Letterboxd. Uh, my username's just Patrick Repul, all one word. Um... You can find me at my viewing journal, which is basically just all my Letterboxd reviews, plus my reviews of movies that aren't on Letterboxd, because um, believe it or not, Letterboxd isn't a perfect site. Believe it or not. You know what Letterboxd doesn't have on their site? Surviving edged weapons. Mm. <laughs> you know? For some reason, they don't have police training videos on their site. So uh, you, you, want the, you want the full story? You're going to go to Marthy, Martha Marcy Nash and Young wordpress.com. Um, and uh, I'm on Twitter at Patrick Rafal. That's cool. Um, I'm over at uh, Instant Gym at the Letterboxd Twitter, and uh, you can reach us at directorsclubpodcast.com, and of course send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Can't wait to talk Rowan Polanski with everybody next week, or in two weeks. I am so and, graceful uh, at this. Thank you. Thanks again to Al Donovan for sending your email. If you want to 
send us an email. Maybe you'll hear it on the hear about it on the podcast. And if you want to uh, send us a voicemail, maybe we'll play it at the end of the show. The voicemail number is 224-366-9528. Perfect. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks for the Polanski episode. Good. Oh, patio furniture set. Good answer. Good answer. Good answer. That's family feud. Okay. Oh, sorry. Awesome. Wrong one. We got to get the hell out of here. Goodbye, Jim. Goodbye. four and a half but in my feed of friends who watched it it's coming up as a three letterboxd has never disappointed me more oh Oh, my god disaster (laughs) this is (laughs) love us for who we are yeah (laughs) please or don't or just shut up (laughs) yeah way to go yeah (sighs) oops sorry you good? Yeah, I just I didn't know it was a double <laughs> double horn. Because that's how the seasons always end. It ends with I found the girl I really want and I love her and it's gonna be great. But he's like so emotionally closed off, he just refuses to like come out and say that and even after the audience is egging him on. Can you believe like I really got into this? I am so weirded out right now.